0: Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian. And today I'm here with guest Marissa Macias to talk about brand new medieval adjacent film, The Dig. Hi, Marissa. Hi, Sarah. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to or agreed to cover this particular film while my my dog squeaks in the background? I would love to talk, but
1: only if your dog commits to continuing to squeak in the background.
0: I mean, she might.
1: Good. That's what I need. That's what I'm looking for. So hi, I'm Marissa Macias. I had training in archaeology as an undergraduate. I majored in anthropology. I went on to get my PhD in anthropology, biological anthropology, specifically paleoanthropology. So looking at things from the past was my area of expertise mm-hmm. as an academic for quite some time. I'm not an academic anymore, which is a decision I'm mostly very pleased about. <laughs> but I was excited to talk about this because I, I look back on a lot of the digs, especially from my undergraduate experience with a lot of funness. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of like a fun way to revisit that. And also, you know, there's a lot of like glorifying of like what the experience yeah. is. So I thought it'd be fun to sort of touch on well, what it like, what does it look like in a movie and how is what's that going to be like? So I'm glad we picked this. And I also learned a bunch about Sutton Who, which was not part of my issue.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was cool too. And I'm really glad to have your perspective as somebody who's actually uh, had this kind of experience. Since uh, this is not something I've actually ever done, I've never actually been on an archaeological dig. Have you visited a site just for kicks? I'd love to one day. I think it would actually be really fun to just kind of see what that experience is like. But it's uh, it's not one I've yet had. At least I instead try to get uh, try to get documents to actually you know be readable and say things yeah. which sometimes feels like its own species of archaeology but
1: it is in its way I mean I mostly did I honestly mostly did museum work myself like I went to Mm -hmm. like I did learn how to excavate but ultimately for the area I was researching I spent most of my time looking at specimens that were uncovered long ago and spent time actually trying to get them out of the ground myself which is good because not everyone is cut out for that type of work (laughs) and
0: I am not it turns out it seems hard. I actually always do worry that I am not coordinated enough to ever be involved in that sort of thing. I have broken a fossil before, which was really thing. <laughs> but luckily
1: I broke so it where it it's already been broken. Like right? I, it where it had been broken and glued back together. So I broke it at the glue. Mm. So they were pretty cool about that. But it was still humiliating.
0: <laughs> My only version of that is that I work with uh, documents that are actually the earliest paper documents in Europe. Oh, wow. And I've yet to, like, break one per se, but they do um, kind of exude, like crumbles and dust off of them and so at the end of the day i'll leave and i'll just be covered in these like little teensy tiny paper fragments and i'm always like oh god they're gonna see this and be like she can't she can't work here anymore do they make you use gloves or anything or what what are the rules i'm curious it depends on the archive and there's actually mixed feelings because on the one hand uh, there is of course you know skin oils as being a preservation issue but on the other hand uh, there's also a question about whether gloves actually make you less careful because you're less sensitive to how the paper feels and you might be more likely to tear it. Wow. And so there's actually some archives that actually kind of discourage gloves for that reason. Mm. So basically it's out of the kind of three main archives that I've worked in recently uh, at this point, one is a glove archive and the other two are not. Interesting. Yeah. I've had to
1: use gloves because the specimens weren't very clean, but it was a decision mm. they were kind of just gross and oily and not because yeah. they said you have to wear them. Right. So it was more of a personal preference than it was a requirement, but
0: uh, it's always yeah. interesting
1: handling old stuff, what they're going to make you do.
0: Right. It is. Let's get into the films. Today's movie is The Dig, which came out in 2021. So very new. Starring Carrie Mulligan as Edith Pretty, Ray Fiennes as Basil Brown, Lily James as Peggy Piggott, Ben Chaplet as Stuart Piggott, Johnny Flynn as Rory Lomax, and Ken Stott as Charles Phillips. Mm-hmm. So we should talk about some interesting casting choices that they made, particularly as related to ages, because these are almost all real people. Yes. <laughs> And yet they did not uh, use that intelligence as part of their casting choice.
1: Yeah, I thought that was odd. So Carrie Mulligan
0: is... Wait, so she is in real life how old? The real Edith Pretty at the time of the events of the film would have uh-huh. been 56. Okay. Carrie Mulligan is 35. <laughs>
1: Mm, So a hair
0: younger than that. A hair younger. And then interestingly, so then unsurprisingly, the dynamic with Carrie Mulligan and Ray Fiennes is very much like younger woman, significantly older man, because Ray Fiennes is 58 and like old enough to be her father. Mm. But in real life, the actual Basil Brown is five years younger than Edith Pretty.
1: So they would have been like peers, which is... Yeah, a very odd and specific casting choice. Yes. I I mean, I think it just speaks to general ageism in Hollywood. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I I looked at the, the Sutton Who website and some stuff about the real Edith Pretty, and I couldn't figure out, so did she have a son extremely late in life? Like, was her son eight years old or however old that kid was at the time that that was happening, and she just had a baby oh. when she was like, in her late 40s? Or was that... Totally
0: fiction. I I couldn't figure that out. That's a good question. I actually forgot to look up anything about her son. I wonder if they just like made him a kid because you know then you can have a kid in the movie and that's fun. Yeah, having a kid was kind a of my kid, guess. I and it also
1: gives them. Uh, it's a it's an easy storytelling thing where yeah. um, someone who doesn't know very much gets to ask a lot of questions. So yeah. I was like, I mean, if she really was fifty six and she managed to have a kid this late. Then I really feel like they didn't spend enough time on like, wow, that's exciting. It does happen. Like it's not like it never happens, but it it would seem it would be a lot more remarkable and a lot just like lady with a kid, dead husband. What can you do? You know. So I thought that was odd. And then so, but did they make her younger so she could have an appropriately aged child? I don't know. None of it makes any sense. I probably I'm thinking way too hard about this. But I thought (laughs) is. Weird.
0: I mean, my guess is, is just definitely ageism and specifically the like particularly gendered way that ageism tends to function. But I also found it interesting. Something that I was reading said that apparently Nicole Kidman was originally being considered and mm-hmm. she's close enough to the right age. Like she's in her right. early 50s. I don't know exactly what happened with that or honestly, if I think that was on Wikipedia. So I also mm-hmm. don't know if that was 100% accurate, but. Mm-hmm that as it yeah. may, assuming that it is, uh, that's interesting that they then ended up going in this vastly different direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big Nicole Kidman fan, but I would have appreciated that she was the correct age. So I don't know. Yeah, what exactly. Her, but, and, then, and then it's also, I guess it makes it a little more tragic that Edith is dying if she's younger. So, I mean, that could have been part yeah. of the decision. Yeah, so we're talking about this movie, so we're assuming the people listening don't mind spoilers. So... Yeah, she's dying yes. very unwell. You find out as the course over the course of the movie. Not that 56 is like, well, you lived a really long life, but you know, right. 55 is like clearly like that's too young. But I also strongly feel yeah. like 56 is pretty young for like heart problems, especially for a rich white lady. But you know, right. I don't.
0: But of course, the other thing that's interesting is that I could be wrong, but my sense, doing a little reading, is that that actually might have been added for drama to the film because oh. she did die a few years afterwards, but it was a stroke, I believe, and I couldn't find anything that clearly indicated that she had a history of the kind of major health issues leading up to that. As I said, my my research on what actually happened in the nineteen 19- like thirties and Mm forties was quite cursory. And so I could be wrong. And if anybody is an expert on this, they should feel free to correct me. But I think this film might've invented her heart condition for. Mm -hmm.
1: So a lot of choices, specific choices to, to, Mm -hmm. to deviate from what actually was happening at the time to just make up other, I mean, I guess this happens all the time, just sort of very specific and a little bit weird. And you'd have to, really tie yourself into knots, not to make it about some sort of like weird gendered shit.
0: Right. And honestly, this is, I think, pretty par for the course with historical films. Mm -hmm. Honestly, a part of me is sort of satisfied that, oh, they do this with the 20th century too, because they do this all the time with the Middle Ages, that there are films that are about real people, real events. And it kind of seems like somebody skimmed a Wikipedia article, took down like six names and then just did whatever they wanted. Mm, Yeah. And to some extent, that's uh, a little bit of the case here. Uh, I mean, also, I think Charles Phillips, the archaeologist, he also is uh, cast as he's like 30 years older than he's supposed to be.
1: Oh, I didn't realize that. But that actually makes
0: sense. So they cast him as a much older man and he should have been younger? Yeah. So I guess wanted to present him as this very sort of like elder statesman, archaeologist sort of figure when in reality he is uh, fairly young and relatively early in his career. Hmm. It'd be interesting if they had done it that way, though, because then it's different because then the person
1: like has more at stake and more to prove. I guess they didn't really want to be someone you would identify with or root for mm-hmm. which I didn't but even if i had been younger maybe not then either so I I don't know I guess like presenting him as sort of like an old gatekeeper and then like mm-hmm. here comes he finds coming to star things up you <laughs> know like is a different story but I, th- I find that odd
0: but I guess it kind of makes sense It's a very specific way that they're setting up the antagonism between Phillips uh, and uh, Brown. Mm -hmm. And I think the way they're setting that up, it makes sense that he's old, but they also could have done it differently. And I don't think that would have detracted. Also, Stuart Pickett's character is like 20 years older than he's supposed to be. Like he and his wife were pretty close in age and were, like, both students and, like, met while they were both, like, I think, like, both grad students or something like that. Mm. Whereas in the film, he, again, like, he's, like, 20 years older than her.
1: Yeah, I mean, I went, I didn't blink an eye at him being 20 years older than her because I was like, yeah, that seems all well right. But it is surprising that they were similarly aged. Although I did read that they were, while it's true that those characters did eventually divorce, it was not mm-hmm. soon after Sutton, who it was, like, many years later, like, eight or nine right. years later. So I think their whole whatever happened between them is almost entirely fiction in terms of yeah.
0: what like. right? I mean, I also could not find any evidence. That, I mean, I'm I'm fine. I don't know. Like, I, I guess I have actually like weird feelings about the depiction of him as a gay man and what they're doing with that because they're doing that in a kind of negative way. Yeah, I mean.
1: Yeah, I thought that was odd. Like, I'm like, aren't people allowed to get divorced for normal reasons? Like, whoops, this right. didn't count. Like, you know, like one of you was completely gay.
0: I mean, maybe he was. I don't know. There doesn't seem to be at least any evidence for that that I came across. My sense is that that was also something completely invented. <sighs> I mean, okay. I, I again, real a
1: very specific choice to tell a very yes. specific type of story that wasn't what happened and isn't necessary for the film, in my opinion. But okay, right. <laughs>
0: I'm going to do a just very brief summary recap so people know uh, the kind of overall plot of the film. As usual on this podcast, there are rampant spoilers throughout. (laughs) So this is the beginning of our enumeratio or recap section. Usually this podcast does cover media set in the Middle Ages, but today's film is instead one about medievalism, modern perceptions and uses of the medieval past. Mm -hmm. The Dig is based on the true story, more or less of the loosely based on the true story of the excavation that resulted in the discovery of the Southern Hoo ship burial. The film follows several figures involved in the excavation with a particular focus on Edith Pretty, who's the person who owned the Southern Hoo estate, and Basil Brown, a self-taught archaeologist hired to excavate the site.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He's a really interesting figure, and I actually find it really fascinating, and it does seem to be true that despite the fact that he was the person who started the excavation, was responsible for the initial discoveries, and uh, was uh, in many ways really crucial in getting this project going and its continuation, he did not get formal credit for years. Yeah. In
1: my limited experience, I've been on a couple of digs where hobbyist archaeologists came so there would be the professor who was in charge and then undergrads and grad students who were doing a lot of the work. And then randos who love archaeology would show up. And sometimes we're like donors and they're like, here, you got to be part of the action for the day and like would give them <laughs> stuff to do uh, where they couldn't break or ruin anything. And then they would give more money. I guess. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes there were people who'd been just doing this for years. Like they're like, I'm so yeah. excited. I just want to be a part of this. And they like go from dig to dig, like they're either retired or mm-hmm. healthy, or I don't know yeah. what they're doing, but like they run around and get a bunch of experience doing this. And they're just, they're like, I'll come for free. I'll pay for myself. I just want to be a part of it. Um, and yeah. those people are always really interested because I'm like, man, I'm doing this for a class, but you, this is, <laughs> this, this is your thing.
0: And I kind of get it. Like I could honestly kind of see doing that if I was just like mega rich.
1: Yeah. You to work and you're like, well, this seems cool. I always thought that was kind of interesting. Plus it was like the thirties and forties where archaeology was really not much of a science. Right. So an interesting thing about archaeology, sometimes archaeology is housed within anthropology.
0: Mm -hmm. Like there
1: are archaeologists who are primarily anthropologists, but then there's also archaeology departments that are like distinct and separate Uh from archaeology. So it kind of is like a philosophical divide. And then sometimes that explains how social science versus hard science they are and sometimes it has no yeah. relationship either so it's all a big mishmash but i guess what i'm thinking is like there's varying degrees even now in terms of how scientific people think you can be about mm-hmm. interpreting the past versus how much it's sort of right like to accept that whatever lens you're seeing it through is already biased by the culture you live in and your own ideas mm-hmm. about what you're seeing or what you want to see mm-hmm. that's true But I was thinking, like, when you get, like, a hobbyist archaeologist to come excavate something, especially someone who hasn't necessarily been formally trained, like, you don't know what you're going to get in terms of what they were doing. But I was like, I don't know. It was the 40s. What were you going to get anyway? Like, (laughs) Right. Or the late 30s, I guess. So I, I kind of was like, like, a lot of the time when I was watching and I was like, is this pretty much what they did at the time, like, you know, like the way I learned is very, very stepwise, very scientific, with lots of measuring, and like, Mm -hmm. there was not a lot of that, and part of it is because they don't have the equipment we have now, but part of it was like, I don't even know how many rules there were, (laughs) but I looked at some old photos, and I was like, oh, no, there were more rules than there was in the beginning, it was very romanticizing how archaeology was done. It is more formal than what we saw in the film, okay, but not way more formal than what we saw. In the film. I mean,
0: I was wondering also if this was potentially sort of a bit of a transition moment in some senses between archaeology being a bit more kind of formally kind of formally academic at least and requiring very specialized particular training and credentials mm-hmm. as opposed to you know being a bit more of a kind of hobby. Yeah, I'm a guy with a shovel, you know. <laughs> right, right. And especially when you take into account the fact that, of course, you know, there, I mean, there remain people who literally, like, start messing around in their backyards and find things. Sure, I mean. That little girl who, like, pulled a sword out of a lake recently.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's funny. Like, I grew up in California, so, like, there there's just not centuries of historical things that are easily accessible in your own yard, the way there are in like right. Europe. I mean, you know, Native Americans lived on the land that I grew up on. So there was probably something, but I, uh, you know, a lot of what, at least the people, the indigenous people there don't leave a trace. So like, even if I had tried very hard to find something, I mu- I don't know if I would have found much, but you know, it's like there are like places in Italy where it's like, you can't dig a two foot pit without hitting like some historical something. Yeah. So it's, it's very different growing up somewhere where that's right under the soil everywhere you go versus having maybe no exposure to that.
0: Yeah. It actually comes up a lot apparently with the subway in Athens, because basically every time they want to build a new subway station, they find ancient Greek ruins. Yeah. I mean, it's been a city for so long that
1: it's yeah.
0: all like people just keep tearing shit down and building new stuff on top of it. Yep. So especially <laughs> as you, you know dig into the ground, it's honestly, in some ways, more likely that you'll find something than that you won't.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, it does uh, uh, create a really interesting dynamic that we, for the most part, are much less likely to have to deal with in the United States.
1: It's true. I mean, I definitely have Friends who've worked for cultural research management where they've gotten called out where like they're building a freeway and they find something and then like they are like yeah archaeologists where they come and clear out and preserve everything so that there's room to like build the freeway or whatever it's an odd way to do things because like you're just mm-hmm. it's, like just make save stuff but just make room so like even if you find something amazing you're kind of supposed to just leave it if it's not something directly in the path <laughs> cuz like right your job your job is to make room for the freeway
0: right and of course also i mean there's a lot i mean there's a lot of weird history with archaeology and some of the kind of choices that are made my understanding is that there's also archaeological sites where basically they decided they were looking for something from a particular period and then if they found something later they kind of like ditched it and threw it away yes
1: yeah, there's a lot of places where if you're doing archaeology at a site where people have already tried to do archaeology, either formally or mm-hmm. informally, like you have to get through the layer of like the piles of crap where people are like, oh, another big piece of like terracotta pot shard and like threw it into a pile. <laughs> so you have to like dig through the crap from the 40s and get under the, the stuff that people from the 40s never like piled up or touched. So that's also yeah. And I was thinking about that, too, in the movie. I did think it was cool that they got into a lot of stuff about, like, soil disruption and grave robbing. Yeah. Yeah, like, you do have to think a lot about, like, who's been there before. And, like, it is funny to call, like, archaeologists from the 40s, like, grave robbers. But if you think about it, that's what Sutton who is They yeah the grave. They put it in a museum mm-hmm. instead of selling it for profit. But right, what is the difference at some point?
0: Right. Yeah. And then essentially, I mean, it's interesting also that they talk about the kind of role that the coroner plays and the fact that when there are human remains or a grave at stake, then there are kind of additional questions that get brought up. But that to some extent, they're often ultimately decided that they don't really matter that much. Ultimately, the kind of historical significance is considered to basically outweigh letting these remains rest in peace.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It's interesting to think about, you know, how those decisions get made. How old does something have to be for you to make that decision that, you know, the putting it in a museum outweighs the letting this person have their grave?
1: Yeah, because
0: I did study human remains
1: for a lot of my research. Mm -hmm. I looked at human remains and then would look at the museum records of how those came to be.
2: Mm -hmm. Sometimes
1: because I was curious about more specifics of the site and learning a little bit more about what these people were like. And sometimes there's curiosity, but some of the records were atrocious. Like, I mean, I'm not um, even going to get into how bad it was, but I mean, I've seen things where basically they went, the museum sent people to another country where mm-hmm. the people there are like a part of the country where people don't have much money. And then they approach a group and they ask the old people, where did you use to bury your dead? And the old people are like over there. And then they go, cool. And then they go dig up the old people's like, oh, God, plants, basically. And they're like, thanks. And then they like, bring it back. And then they're like, no, this is part of our collection. We got, you know, like a hundred skeletons from like rural Mexico and like, oh God,
2: let's yeah.
1: And then on top of that being extremely messed up, the way that they used to do this is also insane. They're like, well, we'll just put all the hands in this box and all the heads in that oh, box. God. So, like, these, you know, and on top of this being like in an inappropriate way to treat the recently deceased mm-hmm. from a scientific point of view like even if you're like okay that bears no meaning it's like i don't know which leg goes with which hand
0: i don't know which head goes with right. which foot. that's also crazy because what i've seen in terms of what people have been able to learn from human remains you get so much more out of having a full skeleton as, As opposed, opposed to, too. like, throw all and the more hands more in this box. Questions you can ask and answer, but if you decide to put all the
1: heads in one box, then <laughs> that goes away. And there, I mean, and also, just it's crazy, too. Like, people used to just think, oh, the head's the only important part. So they would collect all the skulls oh, and, wow. and dump all the bodies somewhere. I mean, it is bananas. I did think it was interesting in this movie w- how they talked about this being the grave and everything. And it was like, mm-hmm. hmm. I was like, how are they going to think about a grave? Like, how did people think about graves in the 40s? How did people in the 40s think about graves of people who lived so long ago that it's like a historic artifact and not like their grandma, you know?
0: Right, and especially because it's It's also really interesting, the film, because, of course, the broader context of uh, these events that the film very much emphasizes is the fact that it takes place in 1939, of course, on the eve of World War II, and basically ends with England announcing that they they have officially declared war on Germany, and Mm -hmm. that now, basically, I I guess my understanding is that essentially all expensive and inessential work, like, an excavation ceases. That
1: was my understanding. I was also wondering if part of that is because they expect all able-bodied men to go fight. And that was are, my uh,
0: assumption, at least. Yeah.
1: in the dirt on uh, fun history projects.
0: Yeah, that was certainly my assumption. Is that, yeah, basically like, well, if you can spend all day digging, you can spend all day fighting the Germans instead.
1: <laughs> instead of looking for artifacts, you can dig a hole to hide in and not get shot. <laughs> you know, normal <laughs> stuff. <laughs>
0: But because of that, the film is also, I think, really concerned with mortality. I also wonder if that's why they have this big emphasis in the fact that Edith is dying, especially considering the element that 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 is, as far as I can tell, at least something that was introduced for the film, that she's currently undergoing health problems and essentially knows she's going to die. That is interesting.
1: I hadn't thought about that at all, which raises the question to me were rich people buried on their land in those days or were they buried like in their church cemetery? Like I I was like, I Mm -hmm. wonder if like Edith would have been buried on her land. And if so, what would that look like?
0: I have no idea what people did in the 1930s. And in like the late Middle Ages, they would have been buried in a church. Mm But yeah, no, I don't actually know what people would have done in the 30s. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it would
1: have been it would have been cool if they had kind of gone in that direction. Like as she's saying yeah. mortality and like maybe she's going to become part of the land. Like what are the parallels mm-hmm. between like, what, you know, what is going to happen to her and this thing that they're uncovering? Mm-hmm. That would have been a cool thing for them to do. Didn't do it. Yeah. All. That would have been fun. No.
0: Yeah. No. But yeah, but it does, I think, link that at least there is this kind of overarching theme of uh, mortality and what happens to you after you die and these attendant anxieties.
2: Yeah. Very much
0: informing the context. Because yeah, she's dying. Uh, there's also her her cousin Rory who shows up, who is not a real person, who uh, is uh, about to uh, join the Air Force and therefore also is very much facing the real possibility that he won't make it.
1: Yeah. So that was interesting to just make up a guy. And I guess he was primarily mm-hmm. invented
0: to be a love
1: interest for Peggy?
0: Yes. We've already touched on Peggy a little bit, but the film makes weird choices so you have so you know it starts out with basil as the really basically the only kind of head of the of the excavations uh mm-hmm. he's got a couple of kind of assistants here and there and yeah, then eventually so the scientists, like, other people that work on her
1: land to like help him move the dirt, yeah. sort of directing them basically yeah Which is very
0: interesting, very backyard
1: archaeology, literally, I guess,
0: in this case. And the find is eventually declared to be of national interest after he's uncovered the ship. Mm-hmm. And uh, that makes it of a significance that it's now officially kind of by state order is being taken over by the British Museum
2: mm-hmm.
0: kind of continued excavation. And so then you get this whole new team of professional archaeologists. So this includes the pickets. First of all, there is this age difference element that they were, in fact, both young archaeologists. Yeah. There's the additional element that while they were both young, she's presented as having basically no experience, which is not in fact true. Yeah. Or she's presented as having some academic experience,
1: like she's written things, but that she has little or no experience with actual excavation. If it were true that she had no experience with excavation, I can see wanting any person with Little to no experience with excavation to not work on maybe the most delicate or important parts while they're learning, mm-hmm. but it's weird that they chose to present her that way because it's like it's justifiable. It's like yeah, you don't like let someone drive the caterpillar the first day on the construction site. Right. You know, it's just like basic. Like you need to learn the techniques. You need to prove that you've got a good hand because this is it
0: mm-hmm. is not
1: just move dirt. Like there is an artistry to it, particularly with yeah. I think that some of this was and how dangerous yes. some of this was like you need to know what you're doing like it's like they wanted to prove that there was sexism but they did it in a way that made it harder i was like yeah we know people were sexist then yeah. you didn't have to make her inexperienced and in fact that's hollywood sexism and not 1930 mm-hmm. sexism like if you present yeah. her actually experienced and then she wasn't let to, allowed to do anything That's worse than she actually just is inexperienced.
0: This is also something that I see all the time, in fact, with movies set in the Middle Ages, that you have situations where the women in the movie have less agency than the real women in the 12th century. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, which is very much Hollywood sexism.
1: Because of our own ideas about what women are or were allowed to do. Yes. Right.
0: Exactly. But yeah, so you're able to introduce this like weird misogyny where at some point, pretty soon after she arrives, Phillips basically indicates that, oh, yeah, no, I just told Pigot to bring his wife because I figured you were probably skinny, which has a lot of other stuff going on there. I mean, my one, someone I went to
1: graduate school with went on a dig. I don't want to give too many details because I guess this is rude or whatever, but. She was invited on a dig, and the person in charge, who, which, who was a much older man, sent her mm-hmm. and the other woman to go work at this other site. So most of the people were working at the main location, and she, she, and the other person were working at the one of the two more minor locations. And they mm-hmm. were finding a lot of like teeny tiny like rodent bones, like very small specimens. Uh-huh. And then they're like, this is boring. Like, none of the good stuff is here. And finally, and the woman, the other woman who was sent to go work there, she's like, why is it just the two of us? Why don't we ever switch? What's going on? And so she had the more experienced woman talk to the guy in charge. And he's like, oh, well, women are more delicate from their experience with, like, you know, crafts, knitting, and sewing. So I thought you guys were better (laughs) suited for that. And then the other one was like, I don't fucking knit or sew. You put us on the real (laughs) thing, we're leaving, and so he was like, "Oh, okay, oh, sorry, sorry." Good,
0: good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but that's absolutely what the dynamic is here. But yes. it's basically he's like, he's like, I didn't. I he's like, I barely even knew you were an academic. Like, I just basically got you because I figured I don't know you wouldn't break anything because you don't you don't weigh very much.
1: Yeah, I thought that was odd, and you know, and then it's like, oh, but then she found this, but like, who finds the stuff when you're pulling stuff out is pretty random like when you don't know right. where to look or what you're looking for whoever is the person standing in the spot where something comes out when you have almost no fucking clue where anything is supposed to be is random like it doesn't have to do with being good or bad at archaeology yeah. it basically has to do with where you're standing like if you already yeah. to have some clues you're like oh this is the front of the ship that's probably where they kept all the cool stuff then mm-hmm. yeah sure. whoever you assigned to be up there is going to find the cool stuff but I thought it was odd that they presented her as like, oh look, she's such a natural look at all the stuff she fans. I'm like, I don't know, she was just kind of standing in the right spot.
0: Right, like, she's got a good she's got a good position, right? Because right. you know, I guess the part where the ship is delicate and so she won't break it, apparently, is how mm. it's presented. But in reality though, she has at this point she has two degrees in archaeology. Yeah,
1: and experience. So She would have been a perfectly normal, legitimate choice. And if you're being sexist, saying, oh, you can't do this because you're a woman, like that would already be regular old sexism, Like you know, and like saying like, oh, we'll let you come because you're light would be a fucked up thing to say. But it would also make sense like, oh, good, you're light and you can do the work.
0: Perfect. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: There was this project in South Africa the Rising Star Project, I don't remember if you saw this in the news, like maybe 10 years ago-ish, where there was this cave and it was like, you had to crawl through this tiny chute for very long mm-hmm. and then you just drop down mm-hmm. to a place where there was this giant deposit of these fossils.
0: Mm-hmm. And it
1: was so small that they're like, you need to be shorter than five six. You probably need to weigh less than 120 pounds. Oh, wow. And so It was a team of all women who got to do this. And yeah that huh, that's so interesting. You need to be, you need to have caving experience, you need to have climbing experience, and you need to be mm-hmm. an archaeologist or a paleoanthropologist, because those are the skills we need. And like they had to work very hard to find pe- anyone who fit that criteria. Yeah. It wound up being a team of four to six women. And it was like, Oh, this great thing about like, well, that's how it was. And like people were like, Oh, this is me too going too far. I don't it was before me too, but like people were like, This is like feminism going <laughs> too far. To <laughs> Any man <laughs> with the physical criteria could have applied; just none of them were qualified right. to go. Oh, yeah.
2: women,
1: it's just—I don't know. They could have made it like an exciting, cool thing like that. Like, what an amazing opportunity yeah. was! Finally, a woman has an advantage. Like, being small is good, and she's prepared. Mm-hmm. You know, they could—they could have made her like a superstar. But instead, they made it weird, and I, I just don't understand the story decision there.
0: Especially because, yeah, she'd like she'd run a dig at this point. Yeah. So she definitely knew what the fuck she was doing. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't her main period, but like she, you know, knows it like she would certainly know enough in terms of like the methods of archeology. span Yes. Weird choice.
1: Oh yeah. So Roy Lomax comes along. So he's taking all the photos, which is cool to have the element of showing the photographer capturing what's happening mm-hmm. in the process because that adds the layer of how we look back on this time. Looking yeah i'm like it's like the picture inside a picture inside a picture kind of idea
0: but it's also weird because there were three real people who were taking photographs two of whom were women yeah who are not in this movie nope <laughs> because you have to have rory in it so that he can have this relationship with peggy because most of peggy's plot is not in fact about her as an archaeologist, it's about the fact that her husband is clearly gay and clearly wants to sleep with one of the other archaeologists and aggressively does not want to have sex with her. And I guess her realizing that and then breaking up. An
1: important part of realizing your husband is gay and wanting to break up is wanting to fuck someone else. Like, apparently, apparently yes. You know, hey, my husband's not that nice to me and kind of gay but I'll stay. Oh, wait, I'm interested in someone else. Never mind, I'll leave.
0: You know, like... Yeah, and a part of me, me, I will say, is glad that, like, you know, she seemed like she really wanted to have sex. The way she's presented in this film, I feel like it's implied that she might never have had sex. And, like, you know what? I'm glad she got to have sex. Good for her. I'm glad she got to have sex.
1: Very nice. I'm glad that they showed a woman in charge of her own sexuality. I guess I just don't really know why we're putting that onto a female archaeologist of that
0: era. Yeah, exactly. Like, why is her whole arc about her sex life? Right. It
1: seems like that didn't need to be there. I don't know. I mean, maybe that was what happened, but it doesn't seem like it.
0: I mean, if it is, it at least seems as far as I could tell from the research I was doing, if that is really what happens, what happened, it was a very good guess on the part of the people responsible for <laughs> this film and or the book that it's based on.
1: <sighs> really bizarre. So the present comes along. And then I also love like they never explain what kind of relationship they have like it seems like they're close but if they're close, why isn't he allowed to live in the house why does he have to live in a tent in the yard is that a choice I I thought right I thought
0: I think he said at some point that like it's too hot in the house because I'm I'm so naturally sexy and hot that I can't be in the warm house indoors like it was just weird like why why are you sleeping in the yard
1: also, like, there's a lot of rain in that movie, and I'm like, so you want to sleep so much outside rain. on the ground in the rain instead of a house that's maybe too warm.
0: I also love how surprised everybody always is by the rain. Like, at some point, there's this whole bit that rain starts pouring, and Basil is up, you know, doing his own thing. And then he kind of looks outside and goes like, fuck, and runs to go, and uh, he doesn't actually say fuck, but, or, but, you know, he like goes and runs to cover the ship with a tarp. Yeah. And I'm just watching this. I'm like, it rains a lot in England. You didn't, like... Think about this as a possibility. You, all. you would assume, especially with ancient
1: ship would remain, yeah. you would have yes. a weather plan in a place where it rains quite frequently. Yeah. I was actually watching that. And I'm like, is a tarp sufficient? And I'm like, I don't think so. And I'm like, and then I was like, what would they do now? Like, what would you do mm-hmm. now if you were going to excavate an ancient ship now? And I'm like, well, not just a tarp and some rocks. Certainly not that. But I was like, yeah. yes, not sure. Yes <laughs> I wonder how much damage it sustained at the time. First of all, I'm sure that I I sincerely hope they had a better plan than the one they showed in the movie. And then second of all, I wonder what it was. I don't know what they did in the forties to preserve wood. Now. I think there would probably be sort of like very formal, like structure that would be over it. That would like, right. Like you'd essentially build a, MIDI building over it build like a building over it and it would probably you'd probably try to like control the climate to keep it from getting too wet or too Mm -hmm. dry like trying to keep it about the same and then like I know sometimes they do like plaster casts if they're gonna leave it for a long time well they'll like put a plaster over it and then cover it with dirt you wouldn't do that for rain overnight so I Mm -hmm. don't know what they would have done at the time certainly but even in the late 30s, I feel like they would have had a better solution than a tarp.
0: Right. It really doesn't seem like it is sufficient. No, but I guess it was
1: fine. So whatever they did, I mean, yeah, no, you can it, still go it, see it now. So whatever they do works.
0: I also find the relationship between Edith and Basil extremely weird in this movie. Because for a while, it seems like they're trying to play it as there being some sort of romantic tension like a sort of like will they won't they and there's this whole thing he's sort of bonding with her and she invites him for dinner the dinners to which she dresses so elaborately to have dinner like alone in her home and i'm like man i'm doing quarantine wrong apparently if that's what you're supposed to do i was thinking
1: of like down there and i was like so did that like stick around for a long time? Like rich people really dressed up for dinner in their house. Like even a single woman and her young child were like, time to put on our fancy clothes. It's dinner time. Yeah. But, like, Or I'm like, maybe she's nuts. And I'm like, is she trying to impress him? I'm like, I don't know. He knows she's rich. Like what is, what is yeah, she it, was- <laughs> it seems odd. But the idea of changing your clothes before dinner in your own house is already pretty strange to me. So <laughs> I don't, maybe I just don't get she's it. Like-
0: changing into a ball gown basically eat dinner
1: in your own house yeah that's already insane like if i change my clothes before i go out to dinner that's already like me going pretty fancy
0: (laughs) i mean okay i will be honest i do sometimes change for dinner i change like into pajamas (laughs) yeah
1: i'm like oh a different sweatshirt uh i mean these days pandemic what the fuck
0: am i even wearing anyway but like i mean i'm actually in person now. So I have to like put on work clothes five days a week and then, you know, no. put on leggings or something when I get home. So I have to dress for dinner by by getting into my leggings. By getting into your comfy clothes. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: I guess in the days when I used to work from home and then I would go out to dinner with a friend, sometimes I would mm-hmm. like take off my like grubby clothes and like put on something presentable to be outside. But that's a very different right. feel than wearing a ball gown in your house. So anyway, she dresses up for this dinner that she's invited to him to and then his wife shows up and we're like wife
0: his wife his wife who he's had this like stack of letters from that she writes him like every day and he hasn't read or opened any of them and he's like I was saving it for
1: the weekend and I'm like I thought you go home on the weekend what are you talking about
0: also, there's like 30 of them like oh. how, like what weekend like a weekend like like a random weekend in three months like I thought that was odd
1: and then I was also like. Okay, he's like, you know, I'm working a lot. I'm like, okay, yes, he's working a lot, but he's not out there digging in the dark in the yes. Evening, you can read a he fucking letter. Is she writing like letters that would take him like two hours to read? Like, is her handwriting terrible? Like,
0: what is happening are, like, tiny envelopes? It can't possibly take him that long.
1: No. I thought that was odd. I can't make time to read a letter my right wife writes to me every fucking day. Like she writes to me every day, and I can't take the time to read it. What's up with that? But no, that's never addressed. We we never dive into why don't we read the letters at a normal rate, like a like a human. John Adams read the letters from Abigail Adams every day. Yeah. So I think this. Is- Exactly. Really could have handled it. He
0: can handle it. Yeah. It's also, okay, so their dynamic. So she clearly is like, I don't know, she like sort of acts like she misses him. He acts like he might have never met her before. And two separate times, he's like, Do you want to stay the night? And she's like, No, nah, I'll see you later. Yeah. Like, in a way, I kind of
1: admired her, but she's like a very strange character. She's like, I'm not going to come with you to the site. I'm no. going to write you a letter every day. I won't spend the night and I'm going to be annoyed with you for not making more money, but also accept that that's who you are. I'm like, what an interesting amalgam of characteristics in a distant life.
0: Yes. And it's just, they're, they're so weird. Like on the one hand, they have like a, like they have a couple of nice moments here and there. And they have these like little bits where it's like, she clearly listens to him talk. I don't think he listens to her talk, but she listens to him. Yeah. But as I said, so much of their dynamic, it's almost like, have you ever met before? (laughs) Like, did you have an arranged marriage four hours before you left to go on this dig?
1: It seemed odd to me. Also, you know, they don't have children. Okay. For, right. In that era, that's interesting. Were they unable to? Did they just yeah. not to? Both of those are interesting, certainly in that era. They don't talk about it at all. Okay, right. fine. But it was odd. They're like, yeah, they have no children. And then the, it's like, and then nothing. Like, and I feel like that's like part of the, right. the element of how how I think of this film as being very British. Like, just like, <laughs> <something> <laughs> And then we don't talk about it. Right. Basically. There's a
0: lot of There's that. a
1: lull, a meaningful lull,
0: and then nothing else. Yes. Because there's also all this weird stuff with, you know, so Edith, Edith's, uh, so Edith's, you know, two big dramas is one that she's dying, but also that she's a widow who in this film is a young widow. Mm-hmm. But there's this bit of backstory that we get, which is apparently true that her husband, Started asking her to marry him every year, starting on her seventeenth birthday, for like thirteen years or something like that. Hmm. Like, what I don't. So <laughs> I guess so. He died in the World War One
1: is the thing, or no? No, that can't be right because then that would have been too early for their child, kid, or
0: kid, kid would be too old. Would be too old. Yeah. yeah so he, he died at some point. I don't remember how he died. I think they might have said, but I don't recall. Tragic, I thought.
1: Or surprising mm-hmm. or something. He asked her to marry him every year. And was she like, I'm 17, maybe later. And then finally on, at 30, she's like, now nah, seems good. Or was she like seeing Oof. other people? Like, what the fuck? Like, the, the, what a weird thing. Also, if a man asks yeah. to marry him once a year for 13 years, what happens oh. in the 13th year where I'm like, oh, yes, yeah. okay, sure.
0: <laughs> right. So allegedly in the film, and this I don't remember if it actually is has any bearing in truth or not but in the film it had something to do with she you know felt she had to take care of her father and I don't know maybe he either he died or she got sick of him I don't know because it has that that she's like oh I have to take care of my father but then it's also at some point she's like my father is a shit he wouldn't let me go to university so I don't know I was like did you actually want to take care of him or did you just not want to marry this guy right and then again why say yes in 13 years also that's like a real move of somebody keeps saying no to you when you ask them to marry you. And you keep asking every year for 13 years. Yeah,
1: doesn't develop any other interest during that time. Like he wasn't like, right? you know, after like five years, he wasn't like, I don't think this is going anywhere. Maybe I should right? pursue
0: someone else who seems more open to this. It's so weird. And they're like, there's a general so much weird backstory that is just kind of weird weird backstory that we don't really comprehend we learned that like peggy's father like drowned uh, dramatically or something and she like goes off about this and it's like i feel like i don't need to know this no like
1: this is a weird character development that doesn't move the plot forward like you're making the character no. more complicated but not in a way that Makes the story make more sense. It's like, oh, you know, it'd be like, if, like, all of a sudden one of them was like, and I'm very afraid of dolphins, and then they all were like. (gasps) And then we all move on and we never talk about it again. Like, right. what right. does that have to do with anything?
0: Right. So, as I said, my my way to thematically make sense of it is this anxiety about mortality related to digging up a grave. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I'm meeting the movie more than halfway on on that with that interpretation.
1: You're giving them a lot of credit, which they may not deserve. But okay, we could, yeah. we could paint it that way and say that that's what it is, and then maybe a little muddling on the execution.
0: They start to make more and more discoveries. Man, going back to the extremely just atrocious way everybody talks to and about Peggy. At some point, mm. she, when she like digs up the uh, the first uh, big find, uh, the Merovingian Tremesis, so it's a, uh, you know, 6th, 7th century coin. Somebody says, you clever girl, which when you're referring to a human and not a velociraptor is maybe the most patronizing thing you could possibly say. Yeah. yeah. Especially an adult woman
1: who has two degrees. An adult woman who is probably more qualified than you are. But yeah, sure. Other than that, I did, I found that the wrong way. I'm like, also, this movie was made after Jurassic Park was made. It's yes. a place before, but was created afterwards, meaning they were aware this line existed and then right? came to use it. And I thought that was strange. Like, I'm like, it's how bizarre. is it possible that the people involved in making this movie None of them have seen Jurassic Park and thought this was maybe a strange line to utter at this point.
0: Like how did they expect there would be any people watching this movie who wouldn't immediately think of velociraptors when they heard that line? Like why why didn't they anticipate that problem? <laughs>
1: Or are they making a reference to it because Jurassic Park is about the past? Like, again, I think I'm giving the movie way more credit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do like the idea as as this is a Jurassic Park reference, in which case also, given that she's being compared to a velociraptor, is the goal that she's actually going to eat her husband at the end?
1: Well, in that case, wow. Good for her. Yeah, just interesting. (laughs) There's so many layers to this movie that are just not fully explored. I don't know. Uh, just odd. I thought that was very odd myself. And I'm like, what was going on there in the writer's room? Like, did, and like, they're like, oh, is he Should say anything?
0: No. Just... <laughs> there's got to be at least one person who just thought it was hilarious and just didn't say anything. They're like, what are you giggling? at? they're like, nothing. Continue. <laughs> Leave it. Don't change a word. <laughs> it was unrelated. Just thinking of a funny thing my mom said the other day doesn't belong in the script, though. No. don't ask me about it. Definitely not, definitely not. They find this coin, and uh, based on this find, realize that the ship is the, they use the term Anglo-Saxon, which I'll be talking about that term and the critiques of it later, but it is, of course correct to the time that that would have been the term used uncritically in the 1930s mm-hmm. as it came to the term dark age, which I will also talk about. Mm. And they talk about how this changes everything and means that these aren't just a bunch of marauding barters. They had culture, they had art, they had money.
1: Woo. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So whew, I, I like saw that line. I was like, wow. well, you uh-huh. did really hit the nail on the head on a mm-hmm. lot of the things that are problematic about archaeology. So good job mm-hmm. there. You, I'm not even sure the movie, like, did was it a wink in the nod where the movie knew that this is kind of an inappropriate thing to say, or they're like, "That's what someone would say at the time." It's just historically accurate. Like, I, I, I
0: was, I not was not sure. sure.
1: I don't know, but I was like, wow.
0: I mean, it is Phillips who says it, and I don't think he is ever supposed to be likable. Yeah, that's true. So maybe it was sort of a wink. Although I'm I'm sure
1: that sentiment was certainly, if not uttered, certainly thought of in that way at that time by some.
0: Yeah, I mean, in this, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, but it certainly is the case that this was a, uh, that at this point there was still a perception of early medieval England as being this, moment without culture, uh, a moment where it was a very isolated place, disconnected from the rest of the world, and that the discovery of Sutton Hoo was one of the kind of crucial elements in revising those assumptions. So it works from that perspective, but it's also just such an uncomfortable set of lines. I don't think it's necessarily that clear for the audience whether we are supposed to agree with this assessment, which very much kind of presents a society as having culture and being uh, worth studying or interesting or important as meeting a certain set of specifically modern Western criteria for quote civilization.
1: Yeah. I mean, unrelated, but this article in scientific American came out about Mm -hmm. like why we need anthropology. And in some ways this article was great about how, anthropology is so important because studying people is important and like we learn Mm -hmm. how to think about ourselves and how to understand others better and like I agree with that sentiment like it is it is true that that's a great thing that the field teaches however the Mm -hmm. article was like written by an old white guy and it shows Mm -hmm. in terms of the sources that he cited and in terms of some of the word choice Mm -hmm. like the edgiest aspect of anthro which you know i think historically will be on the right someday is the part where we're like we have to decolonize anthropology we have Mm -hmm. to get closest to the people whose culture it is we have to understand this whole like margaret mead observing the savages point of view is like fucked up and not objective and Mm -hmm. we have to think about how we want to tell these stories how who should be telling Mm -hmm. these stories like that's where we should be headed. And I'm glad that people take that kind of thing seriously. And then this article just missed that point entirely. Ooh. And uh-huh. I, I think I read it earlier that day and then read like an interesting Twitter thread, like critiquing it. And then I watched the movie and I was like, wow, <laughs> like, that's like, yeah. funny. it was just like classic of like, like who are you to say? What is culture? Who are you to say? What can yeah. not culture or, Also, the things you choose that count or don't count as culture, like, reflects a lot about our own, like, incredibly, like, white, European, modern, Mm -hmm. like, centric point of view. And it's like, Mm -hmm. the concept of you do this, and I give you that, like, whether or not you make money has existed forever. Animals. Oh, yeah. Capacity. They actually did this experiment where they taught monkeys to exchange coins for food. Really? Did you know about this? I think huh. it was actually no. at, That's awesome. this yeah. might've been at Yale, actually. Yeah. They trained monkeys to exchange coins for food. So they would do these experiments where they'd give them, like the monkeys would get coins and then they'd trade the coins and they mm-hmm. just give them food. And then they made They accidentally, this is so not in touch with the movie, but they dropped a tray (laughs) of coins by accident into the enclosure. And they're like, oh, no. So (laughs) all the users had to run over to make sure they didn't ruin the experiment. By any time a monkey wanted to exchange a coin for food, they Mm -hmm. didn't run over with like a bowl of grapes or whatever to be ready to trade the money for food. And one of the monkeys, a male monkey, gave a coin to a female monkey and had sex with her. And then when
0: they were done, she bought a grape. That's amazing. The monkeys invented prostitution. Yeah, they're like, I know what I want to do with this. (laughs) That's great. That's
1: That's great. So anyway, I'm just saying, if a South American monkey can learn to use a coin, I think people have had the concept of exchanging goods and services and trading for a very long time. And whether or not a fucking coin exists is hardly Mm -hmm. the point of whether they had culture or a sense of barter. And then, right. also, like being like, these aren't marauding robbers or whatever. It's like mm, they <laughs> could be both just because you steal from people doesn't mean you don't have culture
0: there's a lot of people around
1: people who are robbers like
0: there's robber Uh culture I mean and that's very much how we now think about the Vikings is the fact that like they are both traitors and raiders that these are two different essentially these are kind of two different sides of uh, what they do and how they accumulate wealth Mm -hmm. this is very much something that we're aware of now that again would not have been the way that people are thinking at any of these groups in the 1930s but it is a also very much related to this like well the romans were quote real civilization Mm -hmm. and then because they were disconnected from the roman world by both the fall of the western roman empire but also essentially there was this weird like well england is an island so therefore they must have been more isolated from everybody else because because they're an island it's like they they've got boats Mm -hmm. still boats boats they didn't lose boats It wasn't like every boat caught on fire and everyone forgot
1: how boats was made. Right, (laughs) it is very odd. And then also on top of which, like I guess I the other thing I just don't get is like they were buried in a fucking boat. (laughs) Yes, I it doesn't make any sense. How did? Okay, I don't think it's explored in the movie, and I couldn't find anything online. How did Basil know that it was? older, like he kept saying, I think it's older, but we're given no insight into why he holds this belief.
0: Yes, there's a lot of areas in general where I feel like there's not as much insight as I think there should be. My educated guess about this is that it has something to do with the the structure of the ship as he was uncovering it. Mm -hmm. That would make sense to me that something about the structure of the ship made him think like, no, this isn't Viking, that this is earlier.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But I mean it's one of many things that I feel like the film has these gestures toward uh, archaeology and how and how people do archaeology and how people do history and how people think about the past but it gives us relatively little insight into those thought processes and so uh, to some extent we don't which also means that we don't have the opportunity if you're coming at this from not necessarily having this kind of background knowledge it's hard to critique that yeah. I actually I don't even know for sure if that's true I'd have to double check I actually don't know for sure if it is true that he just always had this like hunch that it was Anglo-Saxon I don't know either I mean I the movie presents him as someone who loves to read and so
1: it's possible he mm-hmm. read a bunch about the Vikings and looked at a lot of illustrations of the ships and when he saw this he's like this doesn't look like that This ship doesn't look right yeah I mean that that would make To me at least. But if it how how he came to that conclusion, that would have been interesting, at least for me, because I'm like, he says this, but it's like, huh. I mean, it's also weird because like Edith Pretty insists on them excavating that mound in particular. And there's an interesting conversation about why he doesn't want to do it and why he changes his mind and then he does want to do it, which had to do with Mm -hmm. it looking disturbed instead of being round. It was oblong and like how the dirt had settled over time. And then they were like, maybe this one wasn't actually robbed properly because it had settled. So maybe there's still a lot of good stuff in it. So let's go after it. Like that was an interesting point that does yeah. some insight into how an archeologist thinks and was, mm-hmm. I appreciated that, but like, He's saying, "Oh, I think the boat's older. Like, couldn't he have shown us? They could have, like, had like literally pictures of him looking at like a diagram of a Viking ship and like stroking his chin, and that would have like like, doesn't look like that. Yeah, have thought about this before, you know.
0: Yeah, so it would have been nice to have some of that. I mean, there's again, like, there's this kind of weird like emphasis on the kind of hunches (laughs) and how that works, which is also sort of strange. Uh, Carmen, Carmen agrees. Carmen Mm. has lots of thoughts about this movie." she's she's my producer now oh also by the way speaking of the like weird like mortality things there's that whole bit earlier where he starts digging the other mound and then gets like buried alive and almost dies yeah (laughs) (laughs) that was that part was very weird where i'm
1: like what the fuck and i was like is that supposed to be part of why he changes his mind and i'm like or is it another like death is always in the air world war ii is coming We're digging up a grave. I don't know. But I thought that was really odd. I mean, it was it was scary to watch where I was like,
2: yeah,
1: like and like I've dug trenches that are Mm -hmm. basically coffin sized and sat inside them when it was very hot and I could be in the shade. And I was like, oh, Oh, yeah, a little creepy being in here. And I'm like, I guess someone could dump a bunch of dirt and I could die in here. And I was like, I'm not really worried about that yeah but it was it was like weird that feeling of like being under the dirt and then seeing him covered in the dirt like mm-hmm. maybe like, a ooh, moment of like remembering that feeling
0: it was also filmed very weirdly because it's a lot of back and forth between the different stages like they like so first like he's like they're on they're unburying him and then they're carrying him and then we see them like kind of I don't know. Sometimes she they're giving uh, she's giving him mouth to mouth resuscitation. Sometimes they're just sort of hitting him in the face, and then they go back and they're carrying him again. It was odd. I was like, is he dead? Did he die? I was,
1: <laughs> and then I'm like, oh no, he's alive. Oh, it's fine. Okay, right. That was weird. Right. I also thought it yeah. was strange that he got buried by a bunch of the dirt because like when they're excavating the ship, they're like very careful and it's pretty safe. And they're Mm -hmm. like warning people to be careful. But then he digs this like super narrow, super deep, like thin, narrow trench and then almost gets buried alive. I'm like, how is this consistent with him being a good archaeologist? Like that doesn't make any sense. Like it would seem like someone who
0: has a lot of experience and was been doing this their whole life would know this is not safe. And especially that like, I mean, and literally like he would have died if she hadn't been there because nobody would have known. Right. That's also weird. Yeah. So I
1: thought that was, that was a of movie and creepy, but I'm not even sure what it added. I guess the whole fear of death, death is looming concept. I don't know. It was odd.
0: Right. And it's also, I mean, in general, a lot of the film has this kind of feel. There's something of an overarching plot, but it also just has all of these sort of odd series of vignettes and events that to some extent just don't feel like they matter. I mean, there's also this whole bit where after the new archaeologists come, Basil just takes off. And doesn't even bother telling Mrs. Pretty that he's just leaving. Yeah. Then her son, like, rides what, I don't know, like, 10 miles or something on a bike. I guess we all hope he, you know, doesn't have his mother's heart condition. And (laughs) to, like, make him feel guilty about quitting and not, like, taking him out to, like, look through a telescope first.
1: Yeah. I also feel like he could have stayed, looked through the telescope that night and then left. And that would have been, like... Fine. Like, I, I, yeah. that, like, and in a way, if, um, whatever, like, Phillips had been younger, mm-hmm. it would have been actually a very interesting interplay of a young yes. man coming in and you're like a seasoned person who's mm-hmm. learned your whole life, but this guy who has like a PhD from wherever is telling you how you're going to do things. Like, that power play would have been interesting and more meaningful in some ways where he's like, I'm not going yes. to like some dumb. Jackass, tell me what to do, and then to try and say no, I'll play ball.
0: Yeah, and I think that really would have heightened the kind of emphasis on them having perhaps these two different kinds of experience, as opposed to because they then made him old. They're essentially like they're essentially then in the kind of same position in terms of of having essentially equivalent experience. Phillips just also has a degree. Yeah, and so especially given that, I think again, it would yeah would have been more interesting to have had him be 30 years younger which again he should have been
1: Mm -hmm. yeah it's true and you know i did like that mrs pretty sort of challenged him on Mm -hmm. being classist but i'm like yeah and you know it maybe like and you know it shows later in the movie too like mrs pretty advocating for him getting credit being involved i don't know how historically accurate that is it does seem True at the time that the only person who could give that criticism where it would be taken would be another rich person and pro- with the same yes. status as he probably. I would imagine that in those days, in order to get a degree, you probably came from a wealthy family.
0: With, I would say, very few exceptions. Uh, would very be, few exceptions. Yeah, if you had yeah. a
1: degree in archaeology in England, you probably came from a wealthy family. Yeah. So Probably the only person he would be willing to listen to is maybe Mrs. Pretty. And then even then, why would he listen Mm -hmm. to her? She's not an academic. She's a woman. So which he doesn't think too much of. So I, I, that part was odd. I mean, I like, I like the idea of her going to bat for him Mm -hmm. and caring for him, but also in a way it's like weird in this, Like, are they alluding to the romanticism? Is it her sense of right and wrong? Like, I don't, are they supposed to just have a close friendship
0: where they just care about each other because they're like minded? Like it's, it's odd. And it's also this weird dynamic because on the one hand, she's the person fighting against this, uh, this kind of snobbery and for him to get the credit he deserves. But on the other hand, she, we also see her essentially wielding her class privilege against him. Like, it's weird that she invited him to dinner just this one time, and otherwise he never comes to dinner, despite the fact that he's basically living and working on her property and she sees him every day. It's weird that he doesn't, like, get an invitation to her dinner that she has alone in her house with her son and no other person. It's, yeah. there's also that whole bit where she's sick and she goes to the and like she goes to the doctor and then she comes back and she's clearly also feeling like depressed about the fact that she's gonna die and he gets in and i guess uh tells her something about i think maybe that's when like the new archaeologists are taking over or something like that
1: yeah. and
0: she because she's in a bad mood like goes and like calls for her butler to like escort him out of the house yeah that was
1: odd yeah I mean, I'm thinking of even movies like terms of endearment where it used to be I guess it used to be more of a thing than it is now where like no one can see me sick. I don't want anyone to see me when I'm sick.
2: Mm-hmm. Like there's some
1: shame about being right not well or it's not respectable to be seen as not well or so. I I was just like I don't yeah. I don't really understand this because I don't feel like it exists now or it doesn't exist for me in the way that it does in it's represented in movies where I'm like right. not wanting pe- people to see you sick is like about like having dignity or something
2: right that was
1: just odd I, I was just like I don't really get this and maybe it's true that that's more how people are or some people used to be but it, it I don't mm-hmm. resonate with me at all I'm like you're being weird
0: she's definitely being weird i was to some extent taking it as essentially that she didn't want to deal with people because she was confronting the fact that she was about to die and she sort of didn't i guess just like she just wasn't feeling it which like you know i kind of get that
1: yeah but
0: again i feel like i'm probably meeting the movie more than halfway with that interpretation
1: there's the scene where she's with rory and she's like well you need to survive the war because he's going to need you and like that's all that's said. Like, right.
2: do get it? you, you I'm get it? Dying. I'm like,
1: oh don't go or whatever. Like, she just—it's just like subtext. Like, it reminds me of that Eddie Izzard sketch where he's talking about how British movies are impossible mm-hmm. to eat popcorn too because they're so understated and subtle. It's like, yeah, in the room, is like, what is the passion? Oh, nothing. I was just arranging matches. I think I'd better go. Yes, I think that's best. Like, that's what it made me think of where I'm like, no one says anything. There's just like subtext and lulls and staring. Like, I'm like, I that I I this movie's British, but you could, people could say a little bit more to make things make a little more sense. It is yeah. a movie. It is a story.
0: This movie in particular just felt very unnecessarily reticent about explaining characters' emotions and motivations. And on the one hand, I get like, okay, maybe you're going for show, don't tell, but I also don't feel like they effectively showed.
1: Neither showed nor told.
0: Yeah. But don't forget, Penny's dad drowned. That's important. Right, yes. Peggy's dad drowned, but she has a coin that reminds him, but that reminds her of him. And also, she used to believe that it was the coin that Jesus showed to his disciples. And I'm like, why are we talking about the gospels now? I thought that was really funny, just because that is like totally did, the yeah. thing a
1: child would do, but also is completely oh, out of place in that movie.
0: It really is. Yeah, I mean, simultaneously, I was like, that is honestly a great story, but. Now we have so much backstory that is related to nothing. She also spends like ten minutes of this movie telling a story about like nightingales on a radio. Is this going to be important? Like, does it turn no. out like,
1: the nightingales only build nests near sources of water? Or like, I was like, this is going to no. be important. This is going to tell us something. Right, and it doesn't pay off. There's so many weird details that never pay off. It's so funny. Like the thing about the movie Back to the Future is like it's a very tight 87 minutes every piece of that movie pays off everything is important and comes back around and like it's like a very tidy package and this is the opposite of that where it's just like lots of pieces they never are important important things are missing I'm like what happened I don't know
0: this movie is 100 minutes and I think you probably could have told all of the essential parts of the story at about 40 Mm mm-hmm and then if you wanna add story and wax poetic, you
1: you could do that, but you could also do it in a way that makes a little more sense. So or okay. has to do with the ship or makes a clearer metaphor, something. I don't know.
0: Right. And I mean, especially we have a lot of this with Peggy and it seems like a lot of it is there to kind of demonstrate that she and Rory are bonding. Whereas honestly, I'm watching the movie. I'm like, yeah, she really wants to have sex. Her husband won't have sex with her. And he is a very like beautiful blonde man. Like, does it really need? like, do you really need to have all of this other detail? Like, no, I mean, I I was pretty much sold. And I was like, I don't understand what this Nightingale
1: story has to do with Them being closer, like you could have really told this in any way, like it wasn't like music ended up being like no part of this ended up being important. It was just odd. Like at least the coin necklace ended up finding a coin at the site. I'm like, it's intentional, but I'll I'll allow it. But the the birds and the cello, I'm like, what does that do
0: anything? So again, I'm meeting this movie way way more than halfway but there's this undercurrent of in addition to the fact that her husband does not want to have sex with her at all he also does not seem even the slightest bit interested in her as a human being either like there's a whole bit that like so her name is margaret but she goes by peggy and he seems to have like not noticed this yeah like halfway through the movie like he fight like he keeps calling her margaret and like halfway through the movie she's like my name is peggy (laughs) and so like maybe it's like this guy like he's not just hot he like listens to her like rambling stories and shows interest in what she has to say
1: you know maybe there's this whole layer that we don't see where early in their relationship she told this nightingale story and he's like here she goes again with the stories that have nothing to do with anything i'm really this is exhausting i just don't have the energy for this plus i'm gay
0: right and because then it also was weird because it really does add to him being gay as almost making him like this sort of villain in that it's not just that he's sexually disinterested in her but he's trying to be a nice guy it's that he has an actively shitty husband in every single possible way
1: i know there are a lot of marriages of convenience in history and probably still now i guess but like just because you were trying to hide who you were as a gay person by marrying a straight person doesn't mean you were also an asshole like a lot of things were founded on friendships that were maybe not very Mm -hmm. sexual but at least people seem to genuinely like each other like why would you marry someone who doesn't even seem to be attracted to you and also doesn't even seem to like you very much like that doesn't make any sense right and then if we meet the movie way more than halfway and say okay piggy married him to like try to like get a comeuppance in archaeology, like, oh, I'm gonna use him to get clout, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna climb him to like get access to stuff that no one's gonna give me just as a woman, then show that. Even that would be interesting. Interesting. I'm gonna marry this older gay man so that I get to go on cool digs. Like I'd respect that. I'm like that's a strategy.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah,
1: but that's not what the story is either.
0: I have no idea why she married him. It's also, in many ways, not clear the, why he married her. Because, while obviously, there's to some extent, of course, the you know hiding his uh, true self aspect. It's also like. But you, you couldn't find a woman who you at least could sit and have a conversation with? Like, the fact that you don't want to sleep with her doesn't mean that you have to, like, hate her. No. I mean, also, I was in the impression that at least in those days, because so many professors
1: came from money, that they mm-hmm. only married if they wanted to. Like, if you want to be an eccentric yeah. professor who had, like, a chef and a housekeeper, Yeah, being an old bachelor who runs around the world half the time and has hires people to clean up after them and their family estate.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's not that weird.
1: weird. Like that's a thing you can do. And like, I'm making a lot of assumptions about what I think was going on in the world at that time. But I'm like, I feel like a lot of men, I feel like that's a way that a lot of people got away with it. It's like having a career yeah. where you move around, you're like, Oh, I never meet the right woman. I'm never in the same place for more than
0: a couple of months. mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right or like it wouldn't be fair to her to uh, make you uh, you know I mean, have to marry I mean, someone and then leave her alone while I go off on my day right i'd be i'd be gone all the time who who wants a life like that you know like it would it would make more sense you know but it it's just yeah. so strange yeah there's just so many weird choices made in this movie we learn though again i feel like we there's a lot of like unnecessary guesswork involved in part because they have this completely unnecessary semi Non linear kind of back and forth thing again. But we ultimately realized that. So I guess there was an inquest era in terms kind of determining to whom the treasure officially belonged, with the determination being made that it does belong to her. And they also literally, at some point, they have like, they like store it like under the bed, yeah. like next yeah. to her house, like, husband's like, suitcase. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. I mean, Weirdly probably accurate.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, not just treasures from the museum, so like a lot of stuff was hidden in weird places during World War II to oh, keep yeah. away from the Nazis and stuff. And like some stuff was never mm-hmm. found or like stolen or kept mm-hmm. wrongly. Yeah. That's an interesting story. Hiding the shit under the bed, honestly, is probably about on par. Like, I mean, you know, the way fossils are stored these days, like they're usually like in a safe at a museum or like in a shed on site. They're not kept necessarily in amazing pristine location. So one thing that I think is odd, I mean, eventually they are kept somewhere very nice, but like in transit, it's very odd. Like in South Africa, actually when they move the physical fossils around, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of like crime and violence in the area, it's very different. You know, in terms of how they deal with that, but like basically, they just mm-hmm. get a fleet of police cars and oh, wow. they, like, put the fossils in a suit, in like padded suitcases in one car, and then put like a couple fake suitcases in other cars, and then like oh cop wow. cars drive really fast to the museum, and then they like <laughs> I mean, like that's their strategy is plant a contingency, get a shitload of cop cars and go real fast, like right?
0: Which oh, that's kind of amazing
1: strategy. So hiding some shit under a rich lady's bed, yeah. Honestly, not even different. What happens now? Sometimes, probably.
0: Yeah. Honestly, like yeah. Fair enough. I guess. Yeah. Put it. Yeah. Put it under the bed with the suit with your ex with your dead husband's suitcase. And then she donates them to the Museum where She sells them for a good price. I don't remember what happens at the end. I think she donates them because yeah, like there's this whole bit about how like wow that's a generous gift. I mean I guess they're like rich already, so they well, she don't. Well, she's right. So. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. She's rich. She's dying. Her her minor son will be fine. He'll be okay. Yeah,
1: Rory has to survive. Dot dot dot. Yes, Rory has to survive. The part where I was thinking, like, oh, having the boy bike to Basil's house and then meet his wife and him, and then I was like, oh, maybe they're like foretelling that, like they're going to adopt him or they're going to be part of his family when she dies. But no, they don't play that out either. So I was like, mm, who knows, honestly. You
0: can't have a little who bit of Who knows <laughs>
1: that poor boy? We don't know. Right. <laughs> this is real. Was he an actual person? We
0: don't know. It's also like, and, you know, there's again, like uh, there's like this emphasis on this class differentiation because at this party we have uh, Basil and May are like the, his wife are like the only poor people there. And so they don't know if you're supposed to like drink the champagne or like wait until the toast has happened or something. Mm-hmm. I
1: thought that was, like, kind of cute, honestly, because yeah, like, I've been at parties yeah. where I'm like, what do I do? My parents are, yeah. like, lower middle class. Like, I've never been invited to a party that fancy. I had, so was yeah. like, I don't know what you do. Like, I feel like I've been in situations where I'm like, somebody give me directions. I don't know what happening." Right. Especially in academic con- contexts where, like, mm-hmm. when I'm invited to something, I'm like, oh, this is about my pre-grad. I don't know what you're supposed to do. I'll just... Wait and hope I figure it out.
0: Yeah, no, that definitely didn't seem unrealistic per se. Yeah. But yeah, it was uh, definitely an interesting bit. We have like our dramatic then like kind of series of flashes back and forth as Basil basically like reburies the ship. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, because you're not going to do anything with it now because we're about to start World War Two. Well, that tarp isn't going to last for years, so we've got to do something better Exactly, (laughs) We've got to beat the tarp. We could just bury it again. It was fine. It was fine for, like, 1,500 years. It'll be fine for another five or whatever. I mean, it is
1: true that, like, putting something back in the environment it was in, like, if it survived that long in that environment, putting it back in that environment is probably a safe enough place. So it does make sense. It is weird to be like, well, let's undo all the work we did. (laughs) (laughs) Right,
0: right. And then I guess it's that, you know, they have the photographs and they know it's been done. And to some extent, you know, that's what matters most right now. And it does, you know, putting it back in its original environment certainly obviously makes more sense than trying to do like a rushed excavation job. Yeah. and like at that time, like the type of equipment they had access to, there's
1: no way even if they worked as fast as they could, that they could get it out quickly. Even now we're mm-hmm. gonna try to do a really great job. you need a lot of equipment and time. So it totally made sense to leave it there and to bury it. It's just sort of visually dramatic to see the like recovery yes. work. It's a it's a weird thing. Yeah.
0: And again, what makes this movie weird is that these last few minutes give equal weight to the reburying of the ship and the figuring out what's going to happen with this major archaeological discovery. And also Peggy talking to her husband and being like, Why don't you be gay and I'm gonna like fuck this hot blonde pilot? Yeah. <laughs> All the
1: major plot points. It is odd. And then like nothing about like
0: Mrs. Pretty or what becomes of Basil or whatever. I'm just like, this is very right. odd. And then we've got, we have got the big, what's it called? Like kind of closing crawl that says that the Who treasure spent the war in a London underground station, didn't get shown until the general, to the general public until nine years after Edith had died, which I think was during the war at some point that Brown's name, it was not mentioned and it was only relatively recently that it got added to the display in the British museum,
1: which is fucked up. That's pretty fucked up. I also feel like it's totally like there is I mean, you you could totally talk to this, but like, there's still a gr- high degree of classism in academia, so it doesn't surprise me at all that they've Absolutely. done this. It also reminded me a lot of things I've seen in terms, even now, like the politics of how paleoanthro works in Africa is honestly like, that's like an eight hour podcast, but like basically <laughs> there's different mindsets about who has the say about what happens to fossils. And it is, Very colonial, in that it's like Mm -hmm. some white guy from America found it and then he lets you keep it in the museum, but he's the decider of who gets to look at it. Mm -hmm. So, if you want to look at this fossil, you have to get permission from the white guy in America to go and let the people who work in the Kenya Museum get them to let you to look at it. I have a friend who was confronted by one of these guys. So, she wasn't even looking at like the hot ticket item of the museum. She was looking yeah. at other stuff. Not that I don't mean to diminish her research at all. It's very cool. I like, I have a lot of faith in it, but it's just not the thing that most people come to see. It was like, right, like, right. Yeah. Monkeys that most people don't know or think very much about. Yeah. And she was looking at these and like they were re- very important specimens for her research. And she mm-hmm. went into the museum and they said, yes, you can see them. And so she was looking at them. The guy comes in. I saw him earlier in the day. I was like, like I like was like, ooh, that guy, because like I I knew him by reputation to be scared of him and Mm -hmm. stay out of his way. And I was like, on the one hand, he should know. Cause like I was working on some hot ticket specimens and I was like, on the one hand, I feel like this guy should know who I am. Cause I am looking at this stuff. Like on the other hand, if I can fly under the radar as a nobody and I don't have to deal with that, yeah. that's in my interest. And I'm a woman, yes. so I kind of am invisible. So I guess I'm going to use this, but he was in the room where she was working on the cool fossil monkeys and mm-hmm. he was like, what are you working on And she was like, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, Oh, you should also look at this, this, like, it seemed like he was going to help her. He's like, you should look at these things. Uh Great. And then the next day he came in and he's like, I looked through my email and I can't find any email that you wrote to me, requesting my permission to look at these items.
0: Oh, wow. No,
1: he didn't come in. He, he wrote, he emailed her saying, I don't have an email from you asking my permission to look at this stuff. And then she, she, she messages me, like we're in different parts of the museum and she messages, Mm -hmm. me, what am I going to do? I wrote back and I said, uh, well, if I were you, this is not the right thing to do, but this is what I would do, which is I would say, oh my God, I completely remember writing you this email, but I don't see it in my sent items.
0: Exactly. It yeah. Like, oh wow, something here. weird must have happened in the I'm internet. I'm so sorry.
1: I, I don't know what happened. What can I do to make this right? It's a fucking lie, yeah. but he can't prove it is. So you're fine. And she's yeah. like, okay, that's yeah, what I'm no, sure. So anyway, so there's yeah. a lot of this like weird horseshit white colonial, like mm-hmm. okay, and then so that's the mean guy. The nice white colonial guy was like, <laughs> Oh, I'm gonna show you everything. He has the keys to everything, mm-hmm. he opens all the stuff and lays it all out and shows it to me. Right. It's not it's nice that he's giving me the opportunity to look at literally everything that's been found over 40 mm-hmm. years. Like it was one of the coolest things that has ever happened to me, honestly. yeah. But like, it wasn't enough that he's like, I am the generous benefactor allowing you to see my things. Right. Some of the stuff he didn't find, some of the stuff was found like 20 years before he got there, so what the fuck? right? And yeah. Of all, yeah. he quizzed me. He pulled up random little things and was like, what's this? Luckily, oh, no. I was trained to be very good at that exact game because my, yeah. teacher, my teacher was his student, so like she yeah she was a student of someone like him so like i've been trained to be able to do it for this exact moment so, right what's this right. and i'm like it's part of a baby's head and i've never <laughs> seen i've never seen a baby of that species before but i knew enough to know that that's what it was and like i i passed the yeah. of being qualified enough to look at this stuff but it's like fucked up. i'm a scholar oh yeah no absolutely I'm evaluating whether i'm entitled to look at this stuff and once they give a okay you yeah. should let me look at it and like who are you to say whether or not I'm qualified? Like, why are you the arbiter? Yeah. So a lot of the stuff of like, what museum is it going to go to? Who is it belong to? Like all of this politics very much still exists today. There are parts of the world where the way fossils are managed and who controls them and who touches them is very different. Like I've seen places where they're very focused on you're a South African national. This is your treasure. It belongs to you. And if you don't, if you don't have enough skills to manage it because there's a lack of education in the country. Like we're gonna teach you and train you, and this will be yours, and it will be your museum and your decision. Right. I'm much more a fan of that, and I don't think that's always executed properly yeah. either. But at least that's in the spirit of what is right. It's your national treasure. Okay. You should control yeah. what happens to it. You should. Not me, yeah. some white guy from America who happened to be the one who found it because I have a bunch of money. It's really yeah. ugh, and like yeah, you know, should it have been Mrs. Pretty's? treasures that she chose to donate? Like, what if she had chosen to keep them? Like, I don't think that's right. And like, complicated. Like, I do think they should belong to Britain because they were found in Britain and it should be their decision about where they go and what happens to them. But it just feels weird about the people who decide sort of, the way that those decisions are made then and now is like extremely political and oftentimes problematic and colonial and not good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and in this particular case, if she had decided like, I'm going to put this in a display case in like my house and hadn't been somebody who was very altruistic and donated everything to the British Museum, I don't know when this happened or exactly what the politics are. But the sudden who physical site itself is actually also a National Trust site now. Mm -hmm. And so that is also like, essentially, like the kind of property of the state basically and is like a you know and is like set up to be like an attraction that people can go to see But mm-hmm. uh, you know if she had been a very different person who knows what would have happened with all of yeah. that
1: Yeah, I mean I have visited museums in England that are like formerly a rich person's house and are now a museum mm-hmm. and they're sort of like run by a weird trust like it, it's partially privatized it was there weren't treasures there like at Sutton Hoo where it'd be like this is crazy right. one person shouldn't own it but to some degree I feel that way I'm like this shouldn't be the yeah. property of like a family or a tiny trust. Like this is, this is a rare yeah. beautiful resource. Should it be moved? Where should it go? That's a complicated thing, especially because these structures yeah. were collected from other places and brought back to England. And, mm-hmm. Right. That's, so that's, the,
0: that's a whole right? other issue. Uh, like, yeah, where Madrid, where course, does it go? It's very much implicated in a lot of that history. Uh, you know, of course that's where the Elgin marbles are. For example, there is a lot that was taken from the Middle East that's in the British Museum, which makes it a very nice museum to go visit. But it's also the politics of, hmm, why is it that you have all of this stuff? And uh, should you have all of this stuff is uh, really, really interesting. And so Sutton Hoo being at the British Museum does absolutely make sense. And I think that's where it should be, because it is a find that is certainly of a sufficient historical importance that it absolutely should be someplace where people should be able to go see it. It's was found in England. So yeah, leave it there. Uh, a privilege that the English often didn't extend to other cultures, historical right. artifacts.
1: It's true. Talking about my own experience with stuff in America that belongs to America, you know, I mm-hmm. had a fair number of indigenous remain American indigenous remains. So nat- yeah. national America, the native American graves, Rights Protection Act was passed in I think the late 80s or early 90s, Mm -hmm. and since then a lot of stuff has been repatriated. That process has also been extremely problematic. Like a lot of good things have been done, a lot of "hmm," things have been done Mm -hmm. in terms of pressuring. Like first of all, deciding what group remains belong to can be a problem. Like if you know the remains are years old, and three different indigenous nations have occupied that land since then. And you don't, really, you don't really know whose they are. They all have claim to it. They all have different views on what you're supposed to do with them. Like some of them would say, you know, we'll perform a ceremony and they can remain at the museum. Or some of them would say, we want them buried where they were. Or some of them would say, right. you know, we want to do what our practices are now, which is neither of those things. And like, which one's the right one? It's complicated. And like, I don't, I'm yeah. not jealous of the people who have to make those decisions because those are hard. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And to some degree, it's like when you want to study human remains, like finding high-quality, well-preserved human remains of like people, like people, indigenous people is difficult. If you really want to study human variation, mm-hmm. that's hard. And so it can be disappointing that these resources are disappearing from museums. But yeah. that in no way, it, for me, is in conflict with the people who these remains are part of their heritage and their family. They should obviously be insiders. Yeah. It was this weird moment where I had a list of of remains I wanted to look at and like having to go through that list and cross things out. I'm like, this is not available anymore. This is not available anymore. Like it was disappointing, but it was also like a weirdly good feeling. I'm like, yeah. these, these shouldn't be available. These should be going back. I think one thing that was interesting is there's like a lot of othering, like these people of culture and da, 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 like othering mm-hmm. It's like, those people, yes. you may be descended from them. You might not be. I don't really know anything about the lineage of any of these people, but it's like, they're not them. They're you. Like you you are part of that nation. And right. Like, there wasn't any pride. Yeah. Like this is, this might be where we come from, which you might even think like, oh, look, we're descended from royalty. That mm-hmm. like, would be, it would make you feel good or make you feel proud or something. And there wasn't any of that in the movie, which I also found surprising because right. it has also been my experience that, especially like in South Africa where like these remains being part of their national heritage is a point of pride. Like this is ours. This is where we come from. This is where all humans come from and they're here I, I was just surprised they didn't touch on that at all in this movie.
0: Yeah, which it's very weird, although it's also actually an interesting lead-in to uh, some things that I want to discuss in what is the Vera et Falso section. Mm-hmm. What did they get right and wrong? With the exception of the things that I brought up already, yeah. I am not planning on saying anything that they got right or wrong about the late 1930s. I don't know. If anybody works on that period, feel free to let us know. I have a lot of my guesses, but I don't know a lot about right. the either, honestly. I actually wanted to, you know, this is going to be a bit different from how I normally do this section, which is normally be like nitpicking about architecture but I wanted to talk about a couple of terminological choices Ooh. which are accurate to the 1930s so I don't necessarily criticize the use of these terms and the way they get used in the film but I think it is worth uh, an audience knowing some of the issues with some of these terms right so if, if Sutton who was discovered today they would talk about it differently Exactly. Mm -hmm. The kind of big obvious one is, of course, the term dark ages, Mm -hmm. which no self-respecting historian uses today. Although some people who write bad books about the Renaissance, whose names I will leave unmentioned, might use it. Mm. It's Stephen Greenblatt. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) F the heck that. <laughs> I just like literally gave a whole lecture about how like his book, the swerve is bad. Mm. Anyway, the kind of attitude behind this term is very fundamentally this idea that the period, uh, especially it's often used to, I mean, sometimes it's used to refer to the entire middle ages, a period that took place over a thousand years, which is also basically when we invented the modern university. But to the extent that the term has a narrower usage that I would say lasted a bit longer in terms of people thinking that was a valid Term to use, mm-hmm. it applied it to the early Middle Ages, with the idea essentially being that with the fall of the Western Roman Empire, all of these places, especially those that are a bit more kind of on the fringes of the Roman Empire, so Britain in particular, essentially because they no longer have this connection with Rome and with Romanness lose everything, have no culture, and have have no trade, and have no connection to the outside world. Mm-hmm. We very much know now that this is not true. And I'll, I'll talk a bit more about the details of Sutton Who, but I'll just mention one thing that they discuss in detail in the film, which is the Merovingian Tremesis to this coin that they yeah. find. It's interesting, because in a lot of ways, I don't think they actually sufficiently explain what's so important about this coin. They
1: really we don't. We had to Google it. No. Like,
0: what? Why are they making such a big dollar? Exactly. What is
1: this? Should I know? Does every kid learn this? Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause it's not just that, like they used money. Whoa. It's not just that. It's actually the much bigger thing is that previously the assumption had been made, as I was saying before, that England is isolated, that they don't have trade. They don't have other kinds of contacts at this point in the late sixth, early seventh century with even Other parts of Western Europe and the coinage in particular is very definitive evidence that that is not true because a coin they wouldn't have made that coin, it clearly traveled a
1: long ways to get there. It's signed exactly. there was a, there's also why would they hold on to it? Why would they bury it? It's clearly of mm-hmm. importance, it's from far away, it establishes a clear, clear connection between distant lands,
0: right? Or so, I'm um, so not that distant, it's yeah. French, yeah. so not uh. Yeah, so not this one in particular, not that distant, not like but, still, Eastern, not, but
1: still distant yeah. in terms of what they were thinking was possible at the time, certainly.
0: Exactly. So certainly very much beyond uh, England, and uh, the great thing about coins is that there's to some extent, I mean, there's relatively little dispute disputing you can do in terms of the dating, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, definitively, you can say that this, the, you can date this coin because, you know, we actually know a lot about numismatics. You can very definitively say this is a 6th or 7th century coin. mm mm-hmm. And uh, so because of that, you have very clear evidence, you know, this isn't a Roman holdover. This is very clear, you know this this isn't something you know that based, you know, based on the circumstances of the fine, like this isn't something that you know the Vikings grabbed in the 10th century and threw in here and you know, somehow got this old coin and threw it in. This is very much clear evidence of the fact that there are goods and therefore also people circulating between England and the continent in the late 6th and early 7th centuries, which people had assumed was not the case. And uh, that fed into this whole narrative of uh, a kind of isolated, uh, culture-free, trade-free society. And that's very interesting.
1: I also thought it was really funny that the exclamation, they had culture, they had money. Like he's mm-hmm. saying by Jupiter, which yes
0: is reference to a Roman god, and I'm like Yes, which is so interesting because of course the idea is basically that the loss of Romanness is the loss of culture. Yeah. Which also has its own, you know, reflection on even if they had no connection to the Roman past, which is also I mean, not actually, in fact, entirely true. But even if that were true, that doesn't mean they don't have culture. Like all of these places had culture before the Romans showed up. Right. Like it's like, not they were like, well,
1: Rome is gone. I guess I'll just eat hay and die. Like, it, you know. Right,
0: exactly. I mean, it's this very like traditional way of depicting the Middle Ages is that like everybody like sat in the mud and was sad and died at the age of 25 for like a thousand years. Yeah.
1: I also think... I, this is just a separate pin point but like the way people talk about like people died young is just like so misconstrued from like how we think about oh my god so frustrating <laughs> i'm like yeah most babies died because there were no vaccinations mm-hmm. but if you managed to like make it out of childhood mm-hmm. you live pretty long unless you got yeah. killed in a fight or something but like you, then you'd be old and then you'd die of old people stuff right. but it wasn't like People were keeling over at twenty five because they were old. It was like lots of babies right. died, and then a fair amount of youngish people died in fights, and then people died when they were old. Like, and women died in childbirth.
0: Is that the oh, other yeah. big one?
1: Yes, yes. Lots of dying in childbirth, even today.
0: Yes. Yes. I find it very frustrating that there's like all of these people out there who like apparently just don't understand how averages work, who Mm -hmm. think that everybody was dead by the age of 30 because the average lifespan is uh, skewed by yeah high infant mortality in particular, plus, you know, some occasional extra touches from, yeah, deaths in childbirth and then deaths in wartime.
1: Yeah. Also I I mean this is way off topic but I saw this really interesting poster on death profiles of like trying to identify when like a plague would have happened by the average age of people dying in cemeteries saying oh. like mm-hmm. when did it yeah. like hit because it's like well a lot of babies died generally but like even more would die during a plague but, uh-huh. like, more yeah how do you detect that signal from like the moving average of how old people are when they die or like, yeah, and like fascinating that you would want to see a higher percentage of 25 year olds dying but like uh-huh. on a tire. Yeah. A topic, but I was just thinking about that, that that was like a really cool yeah. thing that I hadn't thought a lot about, but like picking up the signal of like dying at different ages due to a disease. Is that
0: timely now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the things that they can learn from our COVID cemeteries. Oh, hooray. So the other term that I wanted to remark on which is related to this uh, kind of discussion about you know national pride is the term anglo-saxon and so this is a term that is certainly very much would have been used uncritically in the 1930s it's also a term that they do in fact still use in uh, you know on the British Museum websites mm-hmm. Sutton who page. But it is a term that is increasingly coming under criticism. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be drawing in particular on the work of uh, Mary Rambaran-Om, in part because I'm not a scholar of early medieval England. I work on the 13th and 14th century Western Mediterranean. You know, I obviously teach things related to this, but I don't necessarily always have my finger immediately on the pulse of the debates in this part of medieval studies. And in fact, I actually had a podcast episode where I used the term Anglo-Saxon And then by the time I was editing it, I was like, oh, shoot. Mm -hmm. But so the issue essentially is that this is a term that, so first of all, is anachronistic, that this is a label that people very rarely would have used to describe themselves in England in the early Middle Ages. That in fact, we actually have the word English, basically, that they would have been using to describe themselves. So Anglo-Saxon is not unheard of, but it's also certainly far from the most common term. Mm-hmm. But the issue isn't just that it's anachronistic, because if it was just that, that would be something that you know would be worth remarking on, but that you would let go. So in the same way that everybody who's a medievalist knows that there is no such thing in the Middle Ages that they would have referred to as the Byzantine Empire, they would have called themselves just the Roman Empire, but that we have the convention of calling it the Byzantine Empire to distinguish it from... You know what people normally think of when we think of the roman empire mm-hmm. if you tell a bunch of undergrads to just call it the roman empire they're gonna get lost and think that augustus is still around right. so the issue isn't just that you have an anachronism the issue is because, as the term becomes popularized in the 18th and 19th centuries, the way in which it used, in which it's used, is often very much about connecting white English people to their perceived origins in a way that often both allies the distinctions between the separate tribes. So, if we say Anglo-Saxon, we're implying that this is all a united group, as opposed to well, there was a group called the Angles and a group called the Saxons and a group that we've left out. In entirely now of this name called the Jutes. So it's alighting these distinctions and presenting it as this kind of single common society or culture, but that it also tends to ignore or erase both their distinct histories of migration to what is now England, but also the fact that they are migrants, mm-hmm. that the Anglo Saxons, Jutes, etc., that these are all Germanic tribes who migrated to England. The narratives that tend to use the term Anglo-Saxon in this period, in the 18th and even into the early 20th century, often have a tendency to present these as being these, the indigenous population of England. Mm-hmm which is very much not the case there in Mm -hmm. fact is an indigenous population that they've displaced and in some cases killed Mm -hmm. and in some cases intermarried with it sort of depends on the time and place to be being very precise. Then as we move into the 20th century, it often gets used in these myths and in this language that is presenting white English people as both a single unified group and also often as a superior group Mm. and talks about essentially the white Anglo-Saxon English Versus these intruding foreign immigrants, ignoring, of course, and this is uh, this you know will be familiar to Americans, the fact that the Angles and Saxons are themselves immigrant populations they just were earlier immigrant populations the reason of course that this is even more of an issue in some ways especially in the united states from what i understand but this is happening in england as well a lot of the time when you see the words the term anglo-saxon being used in a non-academic context it is basically a white supremacist dog whistle now. It was unsettling to me to h- see a movie where they're like shouting about how great this is,
1: where I'm like, I mm-hmm. understand that's not what it meant then, but it is still deeply uncomfortable to see white men shouting about it on, the t- on television right exactly. now.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Because this is being kind of used as this like label for white identity and is being used in context, they're often calling for racial violence and promoting white and trying to promote white supremacist ideologies. Because of this, there's been, understandably, a movement within the field to stop using the term.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: This, however, does remain contested. And actually, in particular, in England, there's something of a like, well, that's your American problem, leave us alone, Mm -hmm. which is still something of an issue in the US. There's certainly also a discourse of like political correctness gone wrong, you know, we're we're cancel culturing the term Anglo-Saxon, etc. You certainly have a bit of that discourse, too. But again, the problem is that while there might be ways in which you could certainly see the term as neutral, given both the history, but also the ways in which it is getting used now, it really does to me seem like a pretty obvious case of if not using this term would make especially non-white people in what is already a very, very heavily majority white field feel more comfortable and i don't know slightly better about their colleagues maybe not being super racist then like yeah maybe we should just not use the term
1: yeah i don't really see what advantages it confers given that it's not exactly very accurate in a lot of the ways that it's used yeah anyway that's my hot take but um (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was uncomfortable. And I'm like, well, I understand this is like a historic term, but it means something different now. And yeah, like, ultimately, wouldn't it just make more sense to use the most accurate way to describe what was happening? And who these people were? When the most correct thing to just use the most correct terminology? Like, isn't that the answer? Ugh, I don't know.
0: When they're not using terms that would distinguish between distinct groups, that the term that they use that actually brings them all together would just be English. And so why can't we just use the relatively innocuous term early English, which is what scholars are, I believe, calling for us to switch to.
1: Mm-hmm. Early English or sixth century early English, or you yeah. know, you could be more specific if that helps. You know, Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's... Very strange. Certainly also is especially something that I think in medieval studies we really need to be thoughtful about, given the myriad ways in which white supremacists love and try to find ways to use the Middle Ages. I mean, of course, let's not forget that one of our uh, fun participants of the white supremacist insurrection attacking the Capitol recently was a guy with a whole lot of Viking-inspired tattoos.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of, like, co-opting because – also because my degree was in anthropology and biological anthropology, we spent a lot of time talking about race, mm-hmm. genetics, and biology, and also, like, the cultural reality of it and what people think about it and, like, how – bizarre it's mm-hmm. been like people who are like convinced they're descended from vikings or they're like true germanic anglo-saxon or whatever the- mm-hmm. they got some idea of like pure whiteness in their head and then they do yeah. ancestry.com or 23andme or one of these ones and then they find out that they're not what they are and they like lose their fucking minds and like yes. I do yes. derive some pleasure from that like on the one hand I want to be like I don't really think you understand DNA or what this means or like, mm-hmm. what these results actually tell you about where you come from but also if you feel bad about yourself i'll just take a win for a win right like it's honestly
0: it's sort of satisfying yeah
1: So i was sort of thinking about that vaguely too and like it's just like disgusting and disturbing like people want to retell their own history to suit their own feelings did you actually see that tweet recently that was something like history sometimes will make you uncomfortable so history sometimes will make you sad history will sometimes make you angry and if reading about history makes you feel happy and proud, you might not be reading history.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, which is... I think it, which is, I think, a really great point to make. You know, very rarely does history confirm various kind of like nationalist narratives. Very rarely does history confirm uh, narratives that are about racial and particularly white pride. And it's actually, it's really interesting that there is this whole, uh, there at some point was this whole article about this guy who was uh, a white supremacist who like got like raised as a white supremacist and went to college and uh, took a medieval studies class. And apparently actually stopped being a white supremacist because the medieval history that he learned didn't support his narrative of the Middle Ages as being this time of like white supremacy and uh, white homogeneity. Mm. Well, I guess there's some hope then. You know, not not that I'm going to save the world by teaching medieval history, but, but- I'm not, not going to save the world by teaching medieval history. I mean, I'll take it. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> And it is certainly something that I think is very much the responsibility of us in this field to overtly address these misuses of the medieval past and to talk about the Middle Ages in ways that emphasizes, in particular, actually, the kind of diversity of the medieval world and also the various ways in which it you know, does not map on to these narratives that people have.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting from the point of view of archaeology, what did this movie mm-hmm. get right and wrong? I really did like the discussion of disruption of Earth. I thought that was great. Yes. And that being the consideration of like how and where to dig, that's still something you have to think about all the time when you're starting a new project. One other thing is that I, based on some cursory looking at the Sutton Hoo website and some Googling, some mm-hmm. intensive academic research, it seems that they were in fact a lot more scientifically oriented than they were in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like I saw <laughs> of them like making a grid with string to sort of, mm. track of where things
0: came from, as opposed to just let's like, in the ground over here. Why no, not?
1: <laughs> it came from right there. They sort of had like a grid system. You know, now we use all kinds of fancy technology, like the satellites or total station systems where you can like take a specific 3D point relative to like a stationary point. So you can like know the exact mm-hmm. location in both height and space where something is found. And you can exactly. actually like outline structures and like create three D models of the site. Obviously, that wasn't available at the time, but at least it was a little more scientific and trying to keep track of the actual locations of where things came from and how deep they were yeah. than is depicted in the movie. Which again, it's a movie. It's not pretty to have like long pieces of string and people like carefully climbing. Right. But that's a little <laughs> bit more realistic. Yeah, he talked a little bit about like the way the ship was oriented and the way the body was oriented, mm-hmm. and, like archaeology basics. Like how is the body oriented? Tells you a lot about who the people were and what they believed, like were they oriented East West or their face up or their arms crossed, like all body position orientation to the world mm. relationship to bodies of water or mountains or other the structures that were there at the time are things you think about in terms of a burial and they could have gone further with it, but they did at least talk about it at all, which I liked. Yeah. Another piece of this that I thought was interesting is the piece of archeology span culture where a lot of the higher order decision-making and the politics happens not on the site but happens in the house on a rainy day or at the pub in particular like over drinks yeah. at the end of the day like that's kind of the to put it in the handle terms like that's the room where it happens yeah if you want to climb of power you need to be in the room where it happens
0: that feels very true to like academic conferences too. yeah very much like that's you know <laughs> it, it
1: makes sense it extends beyond the site mm-hmm. Peggy excusing herself from the pub is removing herself from that position mm-hmm. of power although how much power she even yeah. had at that point was sort of marginal honestly but also that that's also where a lot of the abusive power happens where people use what they have and they use alcohol and being removed from the world like you know here they're on an estate so they're not like in the middle of nowhere out of touch with people but there are many things like that where you're way off on your own away from civilization it's just you and the team and then you're having drinks around the fire and this is the time when like a lot of political games get made in terms of like who gets to go to the cool part of the site, who gets to be the one who's closest to the body and who gets sort of squished down based on ass kissing and a hundred other things that go on Mm -hmm. under the influence of alcohol. Yeah. I've been in various digs where there was more and less of that. And generally my experience is the closer you are to civilization, the less games people play and the more isolated you are Mm -hmm. from the rest of the world, the more intense Uh bullshit happens. Yeah, them being in a pub with other people and stuff meant that to some degree they were constrained by society's eyes, being like, "Hey, you can't just like treat other people like this." Right, they're all like joking about the coin and like mm-hmm. about Peggy leaving, and like this sort of like tense atmosphere around academia felt mm-hmm. authentic to me in my own experiences. Which, spoiler, not great. Yeah. It's not like it's all, it was all terrible like I do have right. lots of fond memories of like brewing great ideas in this environment and like having these great experiences so it's like a it's you know it's a double edged sword like it can be something where yeah. like, you're tired but you're exhausted and you're energized and the ideas are flowing because it's like this great time but it also can just be this like very toxic environment so it really depends on who you are and what it's about but that I was surprised that the movie captured that and I was like curious I wonder if they hung around with a bunch of archaeologists for a while like oh these people love to do it
0: (laughs) because it is definitely something that I think you know feels true to to some extent my kind of academic conference experiences too Mm -hmm. especially the fact that you know I I feel very lucky both in that I have had very good and upstanding formal and informal mentors but also the fact that I have happened for various reasons uh, to have ended up in a part of the field where not necessarily that many of my senior colleagues, but a lot of uh, people I went to grad school with and junior scholars are also women. Mm -hmm. And so that I haven't had a lot of this experience uh, of the kind that Peggy has of being in a position where she is uh, surrounded by... Men, including you know men that she doesn't necessarily know very well, mm-hmm. not being in that setting deprives her of opportunity, but also uh, preserves her security in some important ways. Yeah, and unfortunately, still the case today. And I, as I said, I've been lucky to have not had that sort of experience, but I certainly know a lot of people who have.
1: It reminded me actually of like a very specific moment in my history. Like it was right after a big discovery that a lot of people I had worked closely with had made. And so it was the year at the conference right after the big discovery. So they were like kind of on top of the world. Like they were mm-hmm. they like had all this fame and like they had these new things and like yeah. because the stuff was new. There wasn't even a room for a lot of criticism because most people knew very little because very, so, so little that work had been done yet. Like it was like, there's this thing mm-hmm. and really some of the details, but there's a lot more work. So they're like riding high on being famous and having something cool to talk about. When I walked by the hotel bar at the conference, they all, it was like a bunch of, white guys sitting together and then one white woman who was a postdoc who i also knew they were like talking animatedly like they were clearly very happy with themselves and yeah one of them was like telling a joke and like they were all laughing but she was like laughing the hardest and i looked at that and i'm like hmm and then later i ran into someone else i know who knew them and them and she's like man, I there's nothing you could give me that would make me want to trade places over right now. And I was like, oh God, I got the exact same yeah. thought. Like, thank God, I met yeah. that one woman you know, <laughs> pretending to laugh really hard at their stupid ass jokes. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? They're dumb. Like, will the bartender take a Merovingian tremesis? Oh, like, oh, oh, uh, yes. Uh, right. The m- the funniest joke I've ever heard. You know, like on the one hand, I'm like, well, I'm not in the room where that happens, but also I don't want to be in that room. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. it's just yeah. very. You know, it's it's a weird feeling, but it's also, mm-hmm. it was interesting to see it in the movie and sort of be reminded of that part of my life.
0: So for the next section of the Historia Adveritas, I wanted to do a little bit of the work of providing some of the context for why it is actually that Sutton Who Matters that unfortunately I don't think the movie really succeeded in providing. It really didn't. <laughs> First of all, this is... Probably the most elaborate grave or funerary monument, anything in this category, that exists from the Middle Ages at all anywhere in terms of, like, the kind of elaborateness of the, like, whole burial of the ship, the grave goods, uh, that this is, like, as fancy as you get, essentially. Then and now,
1: like, surpassed this since then it's it remains this yeah kind of the most important grave from that time
0: exactly and and it certainly is also remains in many ways uh the the display could use some updating if i'm remembering correctly Mm -hmm. or at least it could last time i was there i mean just in the sense of like I don't think they've rewritten most of the copy in 40 years. They really don't update it very frequently, I don't think. No, but it is very much like one of the like flagship like things that is supposed to attract you to the British Museum still. The ship itself is almost 90 feet long. So again, like this is big. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of stuff. The items that are buried with this person not only highlight, like, this is obviously a rich, powerful, important person, but also related to, but even beyond the coin, that is actually something that really highlights England's connection to other parts of the world during this early medieval period. Not only the coins, but we actually have silver that uh, we can tell from the, like, manufacturer's stamps on it that it's from Constantinople, so that is pretty far afield. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. And and some of the gold work is probably things that were uh, produced a bit more locally, but apparently we know that the garnets that were imported at some point from Sri Lanka. Yeah, that we're talking about potentially a like very far flung trade network. So not necessarily that like there was this guy in England who himself went to Sri Lanka, but that we are you know that we are seeing trade connections that ultimately are connecting England with some very far away places. And to be the
1: person that has those things from that far away mm-hmm. is a status symbol in that you were able to acquire something exactly. that is so rare and so far flung.
0: Exactly. And again, in terms of the you know they have culture, they have art. That it is, in fact, the case that, you know, again, this is a period where when this was found, it was often dismissed as being this moment where essentially nothing was going on of any interest. And looking at these objects, it's clear as well that it also demonstrates that there's a lot of skilled labor being done, especially in the area of metalwork that there is a really elaborate material culture, at least among the wealthy that people who are that upper class people or, uh, or higher status people in England at this time had access to a, a kind of really wide array of, uh, of, items. I thought it was a shame that they didn't show the
1: helmet, what it looks like now yeah. at all. Like I, I'm not sure how they would have done it, but I was like, it is stunning and really amazing. Yeah. And I mean, it was already a movie kind of playing fast and loose with the truth. Like, couldn't they just had someone, like, brush it, up this, and it like, looks It's, like, gleaming, you know? Like, I'm like, that would have been cool.
0: Right. Okay. Be cool. This helmet, which is one of the most famous things from the site. And so, so it's a giant. So if you actually look at the, you know, what has survived, it's still in many ways very impressive. But, like, a lot of it has been lost. There are parts where, you know, things have corroded. Mm-hmm. But... When you actually, when they uh, they, so they have a replica that they've been able to do uh, of the, of you know, what the helmet would have looked like originally. And, uh, you know, this is, again, this is this kind of very elaborate, both high value object, but also an object that, again, required an immense amount of skill. So it has these scenes where it's depicting like animals, where it's depicting a bunch of warriors what's it called? The kind of like bridge part that goes down your nose is like in the form of a dragon and the eyebrows are like the dragon's tail. Like it's this really interesting elaborate object. Yeah, yeah it would have been nice to actually have uh, have seen that and uh, to again kind of highlight what exactly it is that's important about this. One of the things though that I do think is interesting is the fact that while everybody's very clear on the significance of the find, we still don't actually very definitively know and very possibly never will exactly who this grave belonged to. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, in terms of what it actually tells us, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter, but it is still an interesting question. First, actually, there were some people who suggested that there never was a body, mm. that basically it was just this like extra funerary monument for a person who had been buried elsewhere. Mm. But first of all, there's basically like a more or less human shaped hole. That the goods are arranged around. a Clue. That's a clue. And also, now that we have uh, the ability to do certain kinds of tests, that I don't know exactly when this dates to, but they've been able to determine that there's, I think it's that there's phosphate in the soil, which which is indicative of human remains having. Yeah, some they, point. they tested. Yeah, they, uh, they tested the soil, which was representative
1: of like a human body having decayed there. That's
0: yeah. Cool. And- yeah. And I actually find it really interesting. Like I'm not sure that I'd known actually until I was doing this reading that like the bones even completely would completely decay potentially, depending on like the acidity of the soil that the bones mm-hmm. could completely decay over 1500 yeah. years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's actually pretty unusual circumstances where the bones persist that long. Yeah. Bones will exist for, I don't know if they if left, if they aren't like chewed by animals or destroyed by tree roots or hundreds of other things that could happen to them. They'll persist for a while, but if they're going to persist that long or let alone millions of years, like they have to undergo a process where like right. fossilized and like the bone is replaced by minerals. Sure. So this movie wasn't shot at the actual site of sudden who, because it's still an archeological okay. historic site that you can physically visit. So they couldn't get yes. there because they have visitors year round. And also that seems just like a bad idea, honestly for preservation of the site. But wait, wait. It, assuming that they did a pretty good job of picking a location that looks very similar to what Sutton who likes, mm-hmm. my guess is based on the proximity of water that soil was nearly mm-hmm. damp, which is not ideal conditions for bones like however uh-huh. So that probably also played a role in the bones not sticking. That makes sense. Farm. Yeah, it's also interesting because where that water was at the time of the first uncovering may not be the exact place where it was before then.
0: Right. Yeah. So we have no body, but we know that there was a body. And our current top candidate for the occupant of the grave seems to be somebody named Radwald of East Anglia, who is, uh, you know, he's, he's one of your particularly successful monarchs. Like, this is a period in early medieval England where. There's a lot of back and forth at any given time. There's usually multiple people, you know, referring to themselves as kings. She's somebody who seems to have established control over a wider geographical area than a lot of other people. Unfortunately, his reign is very poorly documented, in part mm. because the monasteries in the region that had, that was his main base uh, were largely destroyed in Viking raids, mm. and in particular, their doc- the documentation that they had from this period was then lost. So, if they had things like records of him having donated to these monasteries uh, because he actually did uh, convert to Christianity. These kinds of records uh, that you know even could have talked about something having to do with burial arrangements or his death, that uh, these would have been lost. And so it is very possible that if there were ever a textual smoking gun piece of evidence demonstrating that this is him, that it probably doesn't exist any longer. Mm. Would they also have records of things like his children being baptized or something like that? so we don't really have baptismal records for the most part this mm-hmm. early like they would have actually talked about his baptism just because he's a big deal uh-huh. and his children actually even i don't know about all his children but at least the son who inherited him did not in fact become a christian so he actually mm-hmm. went uh, he actually stuck with the whole the whole polytheistic thing uh, So okay. you know, there's a lot of back and forth in that sense as well your dad joined a different religion right Yeah, but yeah, because it's cool, because there's also there's a kind of a few things here and there that have uh, Christian symbolism that are buried at Sutton Hoo, including that there are these spoons, which are engraved Saul and Paul, with, of course, Paul being known as somebody who had this kind of conversion experience and becoming a Christian after having previously, according to his own narrative, persecuted Christians, with Saul being his pre-conversion name, Mm. this could be particularly interesting as a way to refer to somebody who uh, was baptized as an adult which mm. Radwald was. That's cool. And then the other thing that I just wanted to note in terms of what it is that we can learn from these grave goods, there's just like a lot of cool, weird things. So he has a sword that he's buried with and based on both the patterns of wear on the sword and the fact that the sword is buried on his right-hand side would point to the fact that this person was left-handed
2: mm-hmm.
0: because like, it makes sense that you sort of pull the sword from the side opposite to the one that you are holding it. And so between that, and as I said, the fact that, that the wear patterns look like it was held in the left hand, wielded in the, in the left hand, that it's like, yeah, this like person that, you know, we, we don't even know who he is. We know he was left-handed. Like that's kind of cool. That is cool. It also reminds me, I am left-handed that a lot of, a very high
1: percentage of United States presidents are left-handed. Hmm. So it follows in this strange yeah. that left-handed people are leaders. Yeah. There you go. love them
0: anyway. <laughs> so that actually is kind of cool. And yeah, that, that's just like a, it's just like a really interesting, I find to see what we can learn from this archeological material. And as I was saying before, I am not an archeologist myself. I have never worked on a dig. I would love to one day, but I, don't 100% know if that's going to happen but i do find it really interesting the amount that we are able to learn from this material that uh, often at first glance up, you know seems in some ways even harder to parse than some of these you know medieval documents yeah
1: i spent a lot of time reading like as an undergrad about whether we thought actually like neanderthals intentionally buried their dead or whether we could associate meaning mm-hmm. with that One of the people in my class was an archaeology grad student. He did a project saying, like, well, based on the criteria by how we evaluate burials in archaeology, what if we apply those to what we know about where Mm -hmm. Neanderthals have been discovered of places that are disputed burials and not like clearly accidental deaths or something? And his results are very, like, inconclusive. He's like, well, I can't find any overarching patterns by the way we evaluate other Mm groups. But that doesn't rule isn't out. Yeah. But I learned a lot from that about like the criteria of like when you think about a burial, like what's placed, why, where, where in relation to the body, what does that have to do with our beliefs about the body or death or the yeah. life or religion? Like what, it, what were these things they actually used in life or are they ceremonial and just for the grave? Like, do we just give this guy a little crappy clay sword? Like, we're not going to put the real one on the ground. <laughs> That's stupid. You know, we like, or we're going to be like, no, this is like the spoon they cooked with in life. That's their favorite spoon. and We're burying with them, you know, like it's, it's very, right. our, like understandings of what death means and what belongs in a grave with someone of like, mm-hmm. are so diverse and really interesting. And, yeah. you know, and that is our criteria by which you can also evaluate how important this person was. The more effort that has gone in clearly indicates that person's role in life. And so finding a lot of cool stuff with someone is like, mm-hmm. a big clue that means that person is a big deal, right? right? That's something that's really exciting and interesting is that yeah. not just that, but like just getting a window into what do we think belongs in the grave? Yeah, we, you know, our ideas of what a funeral is like in America is just one of Dozens and dozens and dozens of a long strain of people surviving of what they think belongs with a dead person or where they think a dead person belongs.
0: Yeah. And that's, of course, I think, I think, yeah, that's something that's really fascinating. And, uh, you know, again, like we can, we can learn so much about people in the distant past from this kind of uh, material that we have at our disposal. And it is also something that one of the things that I find really fascinating about the Middle Ages is that we often as medievalists, because we don't always have uh, perhaps exactly the kind of sources or the volume of sources that we might want, we have to learn how to do creative things with sources and how to use multiple sources that are at our disposal. And especially when we're talking about some of these people in culture where for very various reasons we don't have very rich documentation i think the extent to which archaeological discoveries have really demanded that we reevaluate some of the preconceptions that we've had about these people it's the you know idea of you know this is very much was something that did lead us to reevaluate our kind of dark ages narrative that that's been really fascinating it's been really fascinating that some recent archaeological discoveries relating to the vikings have very much kind of emphasized the fact that Oh, actually, like maybe the white maybe somebody should tell the white supremacists that the Vikings were very much interested in the Islamic world and spent a lot of time trading there. Yeah. <laughs> I think we just solved white supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> just solved it figured it out Good you know which is very much like that's not how people thought of the vikings and so again like we like using this kind of wider array of sources and using material culture and archaeological finds really can expand our knowledge of the past in some really valuable ways
1: in the movie they do a lot about the kid being obsessed with outer space which may have no basis in anything that actually happened in the 40s or on a person that existed i somehow doubt that it does There's a lot of like, we are this tiny thing compared to this vast universe, or we are this tiny moment in time compared to the vast stretch of all of time. I think some people find that scary and some people find that beautiful. It's sort of interesting the way the movie sort of interacted with that idea or sort of danced around it. And the idea of like the son wanting to fly this ship with his mom and it into the stars. I was like, okay, well that's sweet and also a little weird, but okay.
0: And also these like connections between past and present and future. He also has this whole story that he comes up with where he's been, I don't know, cryogenically frozen or something. And now he wakes up and it's the 25th century or something. Yeah.
1: Sort of (laughs) like how the king felt when they unburied him. He's like, what the,
0: (laughs) what? Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The sense of like how we how we connect ourselves and the people who we are to our past to the future. But I think those those are really interesting questions.
1: It's true, and I guess the idea of like learning about the past is being very different than your preconceived notions and having to reevaluate mm-hmm. your white supremacy ideals with the idea that the Vikings actually right? met with Islam to some degree made me think of how. There are Christian South Africans who take the Bible kind of literally and think the earth is only Mm 4,000 years old, but that sits in tension with the national pride of these symbols of human evolution being found in their country. And the way that people shift their beliefs to accommodate their religious and spiritual needs with their needs of feeling national pride and being present and having these treasures in front of them is really interesting and that sort of reminds me of those parallels of like how do you hold these beliefs and they have to change and shift to accommodate the evidence in front of you in order for you to maintain pride in what you are and what you think and yeah i think that's really fascinating
0: yeah the next bit of the podcast is the fabula nostra section mm-hmm. where we each have the top chance to come up with a film or show inspired by this one mm. so mine is just that i'm reading this i'm like you know why don't we make more movies about the, about medievalists? I, I know the answer, except we're not very interesting. But, you know, why why don't we make move, more movies about medievalists? While well, uh, this is really fascinating, archaeology is really interesting, I would be curious as to if you could actually do a successful film that actually looked at the process of a lot of the other work, of course, that historians do and that I do, which is archival work and all of our, our dusty... <laughs> Follow, slowly crumbling to pieces, tomes that we that we work with. That's kind of getting into the experience of what archival work is actually like, and some of the uh, the kind of little weirdnesses and uh, kind of details that go into. What happens with that? I think that in order to make it slightly less, uh, probably very dull, since I know from from me working in an archive that nobody actually wants to watch that movie of just me working in an archive. But I think it'd be interesting to have some sort of like back and forth story. Yeah. Yeah. You went back and forth between, you know, a historian doing archival research and then, a uh, you know somebody in the Middle Ages, uh, you know either a community or a kind of person that they're doing some kind of microhistorical study focused on, and uh, maybe kind of delving into the ways in which we, as scholars, as we're reading these documents, we know some things and we don't know some things and we're forced to speculate to some extent and we get some things right and we get some things wrong. And I think playing with that, with the kind of back and forth between the reality and the archival representation would be perhaps an interesting sort of meditative movie like this one.
1: I like that idea a lot, like sort of a Julia and Julia take. Yeah. Where like, I like the idea of like doing a movie about someone like studying medieval women and sort of talking about them as like, not these characters that had absolutely no agency, but like having some power and agency in their own interesting ways. And maybe in the same way depicting the person. So depicting that in the past, like this, these women that they're studying, how they lived and how they operate and then depicting a medievalist now sort of mm-hmm. navigating systems of power and how do they do what they need yeah. to do and get access to the things they need to do to, get what they want and live their life and sort of showing those parallels and going back and forth in time, I think would be really cool. And then I don't know how it would all tie in, but like, maybe there could be some point where the person gets to go and like see some remains being uncovered and like see actual Mm -hmm. items that are from the past. And you would like get to see a cool sequence of like the person wearing the things or using the things and then seeing them like being uncovered from wherever they are. It would be. Very cinematic and interesting.
0: What we're all saying is that Hollywood, you should make a movie about me and my research. You should do that. Pretty much. Let's make it. Very interesting. I think one thing I, you know, in this parallel, I
1: guess you could, you know, when you tell a story about archaeologists and you tell a story about the past, Mm -hmm. I would love to see something where like, I guess this isn't really so much a movie, but I would really love to see like a recreation. Like I'd love to see people like show what it takes to build Mm -hmm. a ship like that and show what it takes to build a ship like that. Like how much Mm -hmm. time and effort it would take to go into this, like some sort of like crazy archeological experiment where like, we're going to do the burial of Sutton who (laughs) like, how hard is this and how long does it take to like, just show the perspective Mm -hmm. of like, when we pull it out, like, we're like, Oh, we got to give all this work to uncover this stuff. But like all of that hard work and intention that went into putting it there and those specific questions and that arrangement in the first place is fascinating. And yeah, you know, to either to maybe have like a recreation of what it took or to tell the story of the people who did the burial, like, Mm -hmm. this is how we lay them to rest. This is what we're going to do. This is how we build the mound and like the processual porn and like, this is why we do what we do, I think would also be really interesting and like illustrate like yeah. the work and the time and the intention and the beliefs that are that existed around death and why you would undertake this insane project. You know, Yes. Um, yeah. I watched this stuff and I'm like geez just you know like throw me in a gun like why all this work But right, know,
0: yeah exactly or like at the very least like yeah you know like the like I'll take the pound box it's fine just like yeah yeah this is drop, drop me on in whatever
1: necessary but you know that 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 they wanted to do this that there was a reason for this mm-hmm. or maybe not everyone who was involved in this thought this was a great idea like I feel like telling that story of the work and the time and the effort that goes into it would be really interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And especially because, you know, in some ways that this movie about Sutton Who, in many ways, what's missing is Sutton Who, that it's this uh, kind of vague background. And as I said, I don't know if it's because this wasn't what they were interested in. Or if it's because they assumed that a British audience already knew this, or exactly what? But I just wanted to like kind of delve a bit more into what was happening there. Why is this burial being done, and what does it tell us about this culture? And why does it matter that we had that we made this discovery? Obviously, there'd be
1: a lot of guesswork because ultimately we still don't yes. know a lot about these people. But this movie was a lot of guesswork, right. and we knew a lot about the 30s. So, <laughs> you know,
0: why yeah. not? I mean, this movie took things that we knew and then just changed them dramatically. So, sure,
1: for reasons that are unclear to us, the viewers, and possibly the writers themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Possibly. So, that uh, can then sort of lead into the last uh, kind of real segment, which is doing our ratings of this film on a scale of one to five based on whatever criteria you see fit. It is completely subjective. I'd say that. I'll give it a high rating for
1: costuming because I love old clothes. I'll give it a high rating Mm -hmm. for the beauty of the landscape. I'll give it a high rating because I like Ray Fines. But the rest of it is in terms of being historically accurate, I'm going to give it a low rating. In terms of going the extra mile to illustrate the realities of archaeology, I'm going to give it a low mark. And in terms of it being a story that makes a lot of sense, I'm going to give it a low mark. So I'm, I I think at best it's a three. Uh-huh. If I'm being generous, I'll give it a three on a scale of one to five. Fun. Don't take it too seriously. If you are falling asleep on an airplane, this is a great mm-hmm. movie. Because you will fall asleep. You won't really miss much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's fair. I, I was even going to go lower. I was going to give it a 2.5. It's overall like it's a pleasant watching experience, but you know, I'm taking off some points in particular for some issues, with the portrayal of women, as well as the fact that for, you know, a film concerned with medievalism, it also seems in some ways sort of oddly disinterested in this major find and why it actually matters. And for the weird quasi-romantic relationship between Carrie Mulligan and a man old enough to be her father, which nobody needed. Very forced. I also, I guess part of the reason
1: that I'm willing to bump it up is because I guess there are movies, there are shows like Mad Men where Mm -hmm. there's sexism but they depict it in a way that's so upsetting. I'm like, this doesn't yeah, depicting sexism should be uncomfortable but it shouldn't be so uncomfortable that I can't stand to watch it. And uh, Right. This movie did not do that. Uh, I'm glad we didn't actually make a relationship between Edith and Basil. Mm -hmm. And the weird stuff they did with Peggy I mean weird but didn't feel as gross as it could have so I kind of rounded yeah. it up for despite being strange and creating these bizarre romances <laughs> or semi-romances that maybe didn't exist at all at least they weren't deeply upsetting so yeah yeah no it definitely could have been, so, been worse so I guess I'm patting it on the back for not being worse <laughs>
0: Yeah, there you go. Uh, I'm I'm often very ungenerous with my ratings, so I don't know. Two point five seems eh, I've given worse. I think that
1: that's I think that that's fair. I think I rated it a little high, but I'm like eh, you know kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm glad I watched
0: it overall. I wouldn't watch it again, but it was fun. Yeah. It was it was just fine. Marissa, are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet if they so desired? You can find me at
1: my personal Twitter at Marissa E. Macias. Although I don't use it very often. I use my anonymous Twitter a lot more frequently, but it's anonymous. So sorry. <laughs> and I'm on Facebook. I don't know why you'd want to message me on Facebook, but you <laughs> really want to, I guess. I was an academic. I am not anymore. So I guess you could also look me up on LinkedIn if you're really curious about my transition. <laughs> if you ever want to chant paleo, I guess hit me up on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Sounds good. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ifdecker. Decker. And finally, if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you again, Rissa, for coming on. It's been so great to have you and talk archaeology with you. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad you made me watch a new movie. <laughs> I'm overall, I think, glad I watched it. Yeah. Thanks to everybody for listening to Media Evil. Bye.